obligations. I always had a feeling I would be undone by a fancy party, Jinju muttered. He and Heiran were in the main library, surrounded by the map collection. The best and comically worst representations of the known world were posted on the walls behind panes of flawless crystal. Ragged, heavily used pages from nautical chart books hung next to cloth maps stained the color of smoked tea. Genju liked this room. It portrayed the advancement of human understanding. Haydon had insisted they meet twice a day since the incident, regardless of whether there had been any updates. This afternoon, there had been an update. She finished reading the invitation stamped with the insignia of the flying boar and tossed it on the desk. The Beifong family wishes to hold a celebration for the Avatar, commemorating his victory over the pirates of the Eastern Sea in front of the gathered sages of the Earth Kingdom. Jenju, this is a bigger disaster than that victory. I thought Lu Beifong agreed to be hands-off when it came to the Avatar. He did. It's Hui who's behind this. Jenju rolled the letter opener between his fingers, longing for a sharper implement and something to stick it in. He's been at this game for the past year or so, whispering in Lu's ear that training the Avatar shouldn't be left to a man of such humble origins. He put the blunt metal knife down. Hui may have a point. Look how Kuruk turned out. We were kids back then, and so was Kuruk, Haydon said. It wasn't our responsibility to raise him. Hui still presents it as a strike against us, Jenju said. Did Shaw respond about the sheer shoes? No, and even if he did, there wouldn't be enough time before this party. One thing Haydon shared with Jenju was a disdain for frivolities. She cracked her knuckles. We could say the Avatar is sick. We could. But then I look like a bad guardian who can't keep the most important child in the world healthy. We will send doctors, herbalists, and spiritual healers, all insisting they see the Avatar in person for treatment. Every time we turn his agents away, It'll sow more suspicion amongst the other sages. No, the truth will get out, Genju said, leaning back in his chair. It's simply a matter of how long we can delay it. Haydon's military mind was already adapting. Then we need to consolidate your allies. Find out which sages will stick by you after this debacle comes to light. It's going to end up with your faction against his. And right now, we don't have a count of those numbers. Genju smiled as a possibility dangled in his head, waiting to be tugged. He could always count on his friend to seed him with ideas. These forced meetings had paid off. We need to do something like that, he said. He drummed the tips of his fingers together. 
What's your wardrobe looking like these days? Hadon gave him a stare that said he should be glad she didn't have the letter opener in her hands. I just wanted to make sure you have a nice gown ready, he said innocently. We have a fancy party to attend. Without Peng Peng, they made the trip to Gaoling the old-fashioned way. Slowly, in a big caravan, with lots of gifts in tow. By the time they arrived at the estate, Jenju had come up with a new policy he would have to enact. Earthbenders, the most elite in the kingdom, needed to flatten out every single inch of the roads. No cost would be too great if it meant never having to suffer another skull-bouncing, teeth-clacking journey over bumpy paths. He stepped out of his moving prison cell and squinted into the shining glory of Beifong Manor. If there was anything he'd learned when he was building his own estate in Yokoya, it was that rich people's houses were all essentially the same. Walls to keep the townsfolk out. A garden as big as possible to display humility before nature. A residential quarter where that humility was tossed on its ear, preferably with as much gold and silver inlay as possible. Chamberlain Hui greeted them at the head of a column of footmen. The short, stocky bureaucrat shielded himself from the sun with a parasol. Master Jenju, he said, raising the shade to reveal a grizzled brick-like face. It always surprised Jenju how the man looked as if he spent his days breaking rocks with a pickaxe when the heaviest object he lifted was his master's ivory seal. How was your journey? Unnecessary and grating like you. Most pleasant, Chamberlain Hui. Most pleasant indeed. It's always the utmost delight to survey our magnificent nation up close. The next carriage in the train pulled up, ostrich horses stamping their feet until the weight behind them came to a halt. Hui opened the door himself, probably so that he could be the first to take the hand of the occupant. Headmistress, he said, providing Hadon unnecessary help out. You look radiant. I'd swear you've stepped out of the pages of Yuan Zhen's finest love poetry. He angled his parasol as if the sun would be deadly on her skin. It wasn't like heat and light from the sky were the source of her incredible powers. No. Hadon barely disguised her shudder at Hui being her first sight out of the carriage. Former headmistress, she corrected. Ah. But educators deserve the utmost respect for life, Hui said, his words and smile coated in oil. Or so I've always believed. Jenju felt terrible for his friend in these situations. Being a rich, beautiful, well-connected widow drew a certain breed of suitor out of the woodwork. Men like Hui could interpret the most hostile snubs as part of an ongoing courtship dance. 
refusing to consider the possibility that Hadon wanted nothing to do with them. And when will Master Kelsong be joining us? Wei said, his fingers lingering on Hadon's until she yanked them away. I noticed Avatar Yun is not with you. I assume they'll be arriving together shortly? The Chamberlain's eyes darted around their faces, checking the corners of their lips, the dilation of their irises for involuntary twitches. Jenju knew that Hui played a game of details. Induction. He turned slight hints into broad generalizations that he poured into the ears of Lu Beifong and the other sages. Right now, the avatar choosing to travel with Kelsong was obviously the sign of a slight crack, a burgeoning rift between Yun and Jianju, wasn't it? Jianju thought back to how he'd threatened the true avatar. On that day, everything had gone to pieces. The net cast by his power and influence over the Earth Kingdom was real, but it required constant, exhausting effort to maintain. The challengers he'd stamped out since Kuruk's death were too many to count. And now, here was the latest generation of Parasite, catching him at his most vulnerable. They are together, yes, Genju said. He noticed the way Hadon flinched beside him. Hui saw it too. With a smile, the Chamberlain led them to the receiving hall. The interior of the Beifong estate suffered from the rare sickness of wealth-induced monotony. It was covered from floor to ceiling in the same queasy brownish-green paint that had at one point been the most expensive shade in the Earth Kingdom. It was meant to show off just how rich the family was. But these days, the main effect it had was making Jenju feel like he was being slowly digested in the acidic maw of a scavenger. At the gullet of the columned hall was a double-seated dais where over many generations the leader of the Beifong clan and their spouse had held court. These days, only one side of it remained occupied. Lu Beifong, Jenju's old master, sat on the oversized throne, his dust-colored robes making a tent around his wizened head at the peak. He may have looked like a mummy held together by silk threads and spite, but his mind was aggressive as ever. Headmistress, wonderful to see you, as always, he squawked, acknowledging Hadon as fast as he could before turning to Jenju. What's this about a loan for the Southern Water Tribe? He didn't ask about the Avatar. Nothing like a business transaction to get the old lizard crow tunneled in. Jenju had almost forgotten about the request he'd made to Beifong after the battle with the pirates. Work hadn't stopped simply because the Avatar's identity had been in doubt. He bowed deeply before answering. Sifu. I made that request because the encounter with Tagaka brought up an issue of balance between the four nations, he said. The Southern Water Tribe could use assistance 
in developing a legitimate navy. Tagaka's presence was stifling any movement in that direction. With more far-ranging deepwater ships, they could prosper from trade and protect themselves from their neighbors, much like their northern cousins. The loan would be for the construction of such vessels. We are their neighbors, Master Jenju, Hui said, materializing by Lu's side. Why would we want to give them any position of strength relative to the Earth Kingdom? Why they might try to claim the contested Chuje Islands with such a fleet. A familiar rage raised the hairs on the back of Jenju's neck. Hui had no real stake in this matter, not even personal greed. There was no reason for him to want the Southern Water Tribe to remain poor and undeveloped and vulnerable. It was simply opposition for opposition's sake. Somewhere down the line, Hui had decided to make his name by using Genju as a ladder and a straw man, and whatever other analogy applied. It was easier for Hui to gain political power and fame by tearing down Genju's work than doing his own. No matter how logical and beneficial Genju's actions were, Hui would undercut them. He pushed to end treaties that had taken years to develop, brushing them off as unnecessary, when in truth, he didn't understand how they worked and didn't care. He stoked petty rivalries he didn't have to, toying with peace that Genju had earned. Had Hui been around during the height of the Yellowneck atrocities, he would have insisted on treating that madman Xu Ping An like a folk hero. It was times like these when Jenju found himself sorely missing the influence of Lu's wife, Lady Wu Mei. She had been an intelligent and vivacious woman, beloved across the kingdom and a source of wisdom in Lu's ear. After her death, the old man had become more obstinate, and Hui's bold destructiveness had accelerated. I've spoken to the southern chieftains, and they're excited about the prospect, Genju said. They've proposed a compact of mutual defense. It's a good idea, Master Beifong, Haidon said, adding an outsider's perspective. Right now, the group most capable of projecting force over the Eastern Sea is ironically the Fire Navy. I'm sure the Earth Kingdom and Southern Water Tribe would prefer to command their own waters. Lu didn't look convinced. Genju didn't want this opportunity to slip away. If it's about the Chuje Islands, they're worthless, he said. They serve no strategic purpose other than puffing up national pride. He realized his mistake as soon as he said it. It wasn't like him to blunder so. Master Genju, Hui said with fake horror. Surely there's no matter more important than the pride and love we have for our country. The Earth King has been vexed over those islands since his coronation. Surely you are not questioning his majesty's judgment. Genju would have liked nothing better than to maroon both the Earth King and Hui on one of those desolate atolls 
and see which idiot ate the other first. Before he could respond, Lou waved his hand. Enough! He heaved himself to a standing position. It was barely noticeable, given his hunch. I side with the Chamberlain. There will be no loan, and no Southern Water Tribe Navy, unless I hear a convincing argument from the Avatar himself. I notice the boy is late. He can find me in the banquet hall with the other guests when he arrives. Lou shuffled out of the receiving hall, the only noise the rasping of his slippers against the floor. Genju couldn't believe it. Just like that, the future had changed for the worse. The Southern Water Tribe would remain impoverished and outpaced by the rest of the world, all because Hui wanted to win a debate at a party. The stupid, smug whims of one unworthy man had left fingerprints on history that weren't likely to be erased. The Avatar could have made the difference, Genju reminded himself. The thought stuck through him like a javelin. Master Genju, I apologize for making a counter-argument, Hui said. But as you know, it's my duty to Master Beifong to make sure both sides are considered in any important decision. Both sides was a rhetorical weapon used by hypocrites and the ignorant. As far as Genju was concerned, Hui was no better than a Daofei, wantonly burning fields of grain because he enjoyed watching the smoke rise over the horizon. I would show you what I do to Daofei. Chamberlain, it is quite all right, Genju said. I always appreciate your voice in such matters. He hesitated, adding a hitch of uncertainty to his body language, the trembling of a man who was hiding the strain of a great burden. In fact, I need your wisdom more than ever right now. Can you join me and the headmistress to talk in private? The upside to the sudden confession was watching Hui nearly collapse in surprise. The man grabbed the desk in his office for support and knocked over a bottle of ink. The black liquid dripped down the Chamberlain's sleeve like blood from a wound. You lost the Avatar? He shrieked. Genju wasn't worried about being overheard. He knew from a glance at the walls that Hui had built his plain, unadorned personal study for soundproofing. It was a safe room of secrets for a man who trafficked in them. The more dangerous element here was Haydan. Genju hadn't told her he was going to tell Hui, because she would never have agreed to it. He risked driving her away in this very moment. It's as I explained. He said, Yun and I had an argument about his bending progress. More than an argument, really. I said things to him I never should have said. It got out of hand, and he ran away with Kelsong's help. On a bison, the two of them could have gone anywhere in the world. 
Heron's face was remarkably still. But the slight temperature increase in the room betrayed her emotions. It added to the effect of Jenju's ploy. Hui was still shocked, but the wheels in his mind were already beginning to turn, his chest heaving for dramatic effect more than a need for air. I thought the monk was the equivalent of a decorative hermit living on your estate, he said, not a good enough actor to keep out the sneer of disdain. He was a companion of Kuruk and my friend, you little toad. He was, or so I thought. I didn't realize he'd been plotting, waiting to seize the right moment. Our relationship had suffered over the years, but I could never have expected to this extent. Jinju punched at the air, letting his real frustrations shine through. It's Yun I should have understood better. I don't know if the damage can ever be repaired. It can't be that bad, Hui said, hoping with his entire heart it was truly that bad. Children are volatile at that age. He, he swore upon his own avatarhood that he would never accept me as his master again. Jenju ran his thumb and forefinger over his eyes. Chamberlain Hui, I am begging you for assistance here. The stability of our nation is paramount. If word gets out that Yun has gone rogue, then there'll be chaos. The crack that Hui had been hoping for turned out to be a gulf the size of the Great Divide. He hadn't been prepared to strike this much gold. Master Jenju, there are several prominent Earth Kingdom sages, including our benefactor, waiting for the Avatar in the Grand Hall, he said, thrusting his hands at the walls. Jenju put on a mask he'd never worn before. Helplessness. He let his silence answer for him. Hui composed himself, wanting to reflect the new state of affairs. He was the man in charge now. He straightened his collar and clicked his heels together. Unfortunately for him, he also forgot about the ink on his sleeve, ruining the effect of tidiness. Master Jenju, there's no need to worry, he said. I'll handle this. In the end, Hui told Lu Beifong and the assembled sages the exact line that Jenju had used on his own household. Yun felt he'd been neglecting his spiritual studies. After much pleading, Jenju had given him leave to travel alone with Kelsong on a nomadic journey of self-discovery. Avoiding such obvious destinations as the Air Temples or the Northern Oasis. Yun had been to those places. He needed to grow along his own path, untrammeled by expectations. It meant no contact with the Avatar for a while. The world would have to get along without one until further notice. Jenju could have said as much himself, but coming from Hui, the story was so much more effective. It was an open secret among the party guests that the Chamberlain was waging political war against him. 
The only thing they would ever align on were basic, incontrovertible facts, like the Avatar going on a vacation. The rest of the visit was spent on trivialities. Genju weathered the severe annoyance and biting remarks of Lu Beifong, wondering how many more years he'd have to put up with groveling before his former Sifu. The old man seemed like he would never kick the bucket while debtors owed him money, and nearly the entire Earth Kingdom banked with the House of the Flying Boar. Hadon stood dull-eyed in the corner as men prodded for her thoughts on remarriage in language they thought was subtle and flattering. Some of them, upon hearing her rebuff, immediately pivoted to inquiring about her daughter. Jinju never understood how she resisted the temptation to bend scorched holes into the ceiling when her element was always available. They left when the party became too much to bear, getting into a single carriage for the journey back. Haydon's admirers could have interpreted that a certain way, but the two of them simply needed to talk. I know you're angry at me, Jenju said. He slumped back against his seat. About what? Haydon snapped. The fact that you revealed your biggest setback to your worst enemy? That you're piling lies upon lies for no reason I can see? Why didn't you tell Hui the excuse he gave to the crowd? Because vulnerability equals truth. The only statement of mine Hui would take at face value was one that left me exposed. Now my story's set with the vast majority of the Earth Kingdom. I only have a single opponent to worry about. She didn't look very confident in his tactic. Firebenders thought in terms of positive Jing, always staying on the offensive. It's getting a little difficult to keep track of the wind spewing out of your mouth at this point. Imagine how hard it is for me. All warfare is based on deception, he said. Isn't that a Fire Nation quote? Hadon suddenly pulled her hairpin out of her tightly bundled style and hurled it against the wall of the coach. It clattered to the floor, the arms bent. For the first time today, Genju was truly alarmed. For a Fire Nation native to treat her hair, her top knot this way, meant she felt she was losing her honor. He waited patiently for her to speak. Jenju, I pushed that boy to the breaking point, she said, her voice hoarse. He might not have been a firebender, and he might not have been the avatar, but Yun was still my student. I had an obligation to him, and I failed. Hearing his name all night must have been eating at her. The absent avatar was still the toast of the party, his conquest of the pirates turning into legend through word of mouth. We can still make this right, Jenju said. We simply need to find Kyoshi. Everything will be fine after that. If that's the case, and I don't think it is, you set ablaze the time we had left and scattered the ashes. As soon as that party is over, Hui is going to march straight to the other sages, and tell them what you told him. He might not wait. It'll be the conversation topic over dessert. It'll be longer than that, 
Genju said. He's not going to waste an opportunity of this magnitude by hurrying. In fact, if he plays the information too quickly and carelessly, it'll bite him in the end. He's a man of self-preservation. Hade untucked herself into the corner of the carriage, her bunched-up gown turning her into a shapeless mass. I wish I could say the same about you these days. To get the last word in, she aggressively went to sleep. Genju noticed that people who were former military could doze off anywhere, anytime at the drop of a hat. After an hour of silence, he began to drift in and out of consciousness himself, shaken awake by the occasional road bump, his thoughts forming loose connections and ideas that he made no attempt to preserve. It wouldn't do to plot too far out. Sometimes the best option was to sit quietly until the next step arrived in turn, like an earthbender should. Neutral Jing. When they arrived home in Yokoya, there was a very validating delivery waiting for them. Genju didn't bother waking up Heiran and hopped out of the coach, invigorated by the sight. In the distance by the stables were two extremely large wooden boxes, each the size of a small hut, peppered with little holes. The sides of the crates had danger and give wide berth painted on them in a slapdash manner. Surrounding them was a crew of underpaid university students, warily brandishing long-forked prods. They pointed their weapons inward at the boxes. Theft of the contents was not the primary concern. At the head of the group was a portly older gentleman in fine robes, wearing a helmet made of cork. He was geared for adventure in the habit of academics who had no idea how dirty and bloody true adventure could get. Professor Shaw, Genju called out. The man waved back. Behind him, the boxes suddenly started rattling and jumping, scaring the handlers. A long whip-like strand shot out of a hole punched in the side and lashed two of the nearest students across the face and neck before they could react. They screamed and collapsed to the ground in a heap like rag dolls. Professor Shaw looked at his downed interns and then gave Genju a big grin and a thumbs up. That must have meant the Shearshoes were in good health after their journey. Excellent. Genju needed them in peak condition. The beast's impeccable sense of smell would let them track a target across a continent. Oceans, if the rumors were to be believed. He'd sent word out to his subordinates across the kingdom, the magistrates and prefects he'd spent years buying off, telling them to be on the lookout for two girls who'd escaped his estate. But it never hurt to have a backup plan that didn't rely on the shifting loyalty and ballooning greed of men. One way or another, he was going to fulfill his promise to the Avatar. There would be no hiding for Kyoshi. Not in this world. The town. The Taihua Mountains south of Ba Sing Se were treacherous beyond measure. 
They were said to have swallowed armies in the days of the city's founding. Howling blizzards could freeze a traveler's feet to the ground, snapping them off at the ankles. Once every decade or so, the winds would shift, carrying red dust from Siwang to the peaks of Taihua, polluting the snow a fearsome bloody color, turning the mountains into daggers plunged through the heart of the world. Peng Peng sailed over the dangerous terrain, unbothered. From their vantage point, Kyoshi and the others could see any weather sneaking up on them. And right now, it was clear in every direction. This is the life, Lex said. He rolled over onto his side, reaching over the saddle, and patted her fur. That's a good girl. Who's a good girl? He'd been trying to get the bison to like him more than Kyoshi and Rongi at every available opportunity. Kyoshi didn't mind so much. It meant Lek took care of foraging and watering for Pong Pong, like she had her own stable hand. Oof, I'm glad you remembered to come back for me, Lao Go said. There's no way I could have made it here on my own. The old man yawned and stretched, catching as much of the breeze between his arms as he could. I have to remember not to wander off by myself for too long. His comment made Kyoshi's stomach constrict. The journal said that Lao Gu came back from his jaunts with blood on his hands. She wondered if her mother had sat this close to him as they traveled, afraid that she might be one of his victims in the future. We're way past the last charted outposts, Rongi said from the driver's seat. Beyond that, the mountains haven't been mapped. Yeah, an outlaw town isn't going to be on a map, Karima said. This is the exact flight path we used to take with Jessa. Keep going. As they flew toward a line of jutting gray peaks, the mountains separated, gaining depth. The formation was less a ridge and more of a ring that obscured a crater from all sides. The depression held a small, shallow lake that Kiyoshi thought was brown and polluted at first. But as they flew closer, she saw the water was as clear and pure as could be. She'd been looking straight through the lake to the dirt bottom. Next to the lake, built into the slope like a rice terrace, was an encampment slightly more handsome than the slums of Chameleon Bay. Longhouses had been constructed out of mountain lumber hauled from the forests down below. Several of them sat on makeshift piles, fighting a losing battle against erosion. Glinting with openly carried weapons, people filed in between the gaps and along the streets. Welcome to Hujiang, Karima said. One of the few remaining places in the world where followers of the code gather freely. Is everyone down there a Daofei? Kiyoshi said. Yes, Wong said. He frowned at the crowds below. Though it seems more busy than usual. They'd approached with the sun behind them out of caution. Lek pointed Rongi toward a cave farther away where Kiyoshi's mother used to hide Longyuan. They landed Pung Pung there, camouflaged her with fallen branches and shrubs, and suffered the lengthy hike to town.
the longtime members of the Flying Opera Company were prepared for the fine silt that rose from the winding narrow path stirred by their footsteps. They pulled close-woven neckerchiefs over their noses and mouths and smirked underneath when Kyoshi and Rongi looked askance at them with reddened eyes. The group was still figuring out what courtesies to share. Apparently spare dust masks fell by the wayside. Rounding the mountain, they entered Hujiang from above, carefully picking their way down crudely carved steps that were oversized to cut down on the number needed. Kiyoshi wondered why they weren't earthbent into shape. They came to one of the large streets and lowered their scarves. You should probably keep your head down this time, Rangi said to Kiyoshi, instead of barging in like you own the place. The debacle in Chameleon Bay still weighed on her mind. No, Karima hissed. You act meek in this town, and everyone will think you're weak. Follow our lead. As they joined the flow of traffic, the waterbender seemed to grow in stature, expanding her presence. Karima normally retained a certain amount of elegance to her movements, but now she stepped through the crowd with exaggerated purpose and delicacy. She gazed through lidded eyes down the length of her chin as she walked, a picture of sophistication, a swordswoman moving through a form with a live blade. Interrupting her flow would mean getting cut to shreds. Gotta look like you're ready to take someone's head off at any moment, for any reason, Wong said, or else you'll get challenged. He followed Karima with angry stomps, abandoning the agility Kyoshi knew he possessed. His feet sent seismic thuds through the ground. Topknot's got it, Lex said, pointing at Rangi. Look at her, boiling away with firebender rage. See if you can pull that off. I'm not doing anything, Rangi protested. This is my normal face. You could also try to be like me. Laoko said. He hunched inside his threadbare clothes, hiding his muscles, and flashed his manic, gap-toothed smile. He looked like the group's shameful grandfather who'd escaped from the attic. Picking a fight with you would be a disgrace, Lex said. Exactly. They made their way toward the bazaar in the center of town. It was slow going, trying to look tough and not just for them. The other outlaws swaggered along the avenues, chests thrust out, elbows wide. A few favored Karima's approach of razor-edged refinement, carrying narrow gens instead of broadswords to complete the image. Practically everyone was armed to the teeth, most with swords and spears, but more exotic weapons like three-section staves, deer horn blades, and meteor hammers were surprisingly common as well. Kiyoshi spotted a few people wielding arms that should have been flat out impossible to fight with. One man had a basket with knives lining the edge and a tether trailing off it. Is that guy carrying a muckrake? Rongi whispered, tilting her head at a pug-nosed man waddling by. That's moon-seizing Jew, and don't stare at the rake, Lex said. I've seen him puncture the skulls of two men at once with it. The Flying Opera Company had, by far, the least amount of metal on their persons. 
Most of these people don't seem like benders, Kiyoshi said. What, are you looking to trade us in for better teachers? Karima said. Because you're right, they're not benders. Most outlaws live and die by the weapons in their hands. Our crew is a rarity. Honestly, I think you should appreciate us more, Wong said. Kiyoshi was distracted by a clatter of metal to the side. Two men, both carrying swords, had bumped into each other as they rounded a corner in opposite directions. The street slowed around them. Kiyoshi's stomach churned as she anticipated a surge of violence, gore running through the gutters. It never came. Blades stayed in their scabbards while the men apologized profusely to each other acting as friendly as two merchants who were planning a marriage between their children. There were promises to buy cups of tea and wine for each other before they parted ways. The happy smiles stayed on their faces long after the encounter. They'll meet on the challenge platform tonight, Lex said. Probably during the weapons portion of the evening. He made a bloody strangled noise that made it obvious what the outcome would be. What? Kiyoshi said. That wasn't a big deal. You don't understand, he said. In this world, the only currency you have is your name and your willingness to defend it. If either of those men showed fear or poor self-control, they'd never get taken on by an outfit again. They had no other options. They could stop being Daofei, Rongi muttered. Like it's so easy to do whatever you want. Lex's face was full of bitterness. You think honest work rains down from the sky? This is why the two of you are the worst. No one takes up this life on purpose. Lek, Karima warned. His shouting had drawn attention. Eyes watched them from the windows and porches of houses, anticipating a second act to tonight's performance. Lek calmed down. Keep walking, he said to Rongi and Kiyoshi. Show them we're together, and it'll be fine. Kiyoshi had no objection to following his lead this time. She controlled her posture with renewed seriousness. They resumed picking their way through the town. There's an expression in these parts, Wong said, his low grumble giving the argument a close. When the law gives you nothing to eat, you turn to the code. Then at least you can feast on your pride. The Hujiang Bazaar was a bazaar. Not much different from the one in Chinchow Village, which neighbored Yokoya. Vendors sat cross-legged next to piles of their wares on tarps laid over the ground, scowling at passersby who kicked up too much dust or lingered without buying. The sounds of haggling rang out in the air. Here, it was safe to let loose with aggression. There seemed to be a distinction between the warriors and the black marketeers who supplied them. Kyoshi noticed that most of the peddlers specialized in traveling food, dried and smoked meats, beans and lentils. Rice was expensive, produce more so. The fresh vegetables were brown and wilted, and the rare pieces of shriveled fruit looked more like decorative antiques. 
how did this stuff travel up here? She asked. For that matter, how did the people? There are unmarked passageways through the mountains, Karima said. More trade secrets. The royal surveyors and bossing say don't have a clue. That must have been a big part of why Daofei were so hard to stamp out for good. Kyoshi reflected on what Jinju had told her, about the Earth Kingdom being too big to police. If underground networks like this one could thrive so near the capital, then the rot must be worse throughout the far reaches of the continent. A whole other community existed below the surface of the Earth Kingdom. The moniker of the Fifth Nation pirate fleet suddenly took on a defiant meaning. We're here, Kyoshi imagined their formidable leader saying with an ice-blue stare. We've always been here. Ignore us at your peril. Wong's foot caught on a brass oil lamp. The vendor it belonged to cursed before looking upward and silencing himself willingly. With his size, the flitting sparrow keat didn't need name recognition. First glances were enough. It's crowded, Wong repeated. He'd been fixated on that since they'd arrived. Karima and Lek took his complaint seriously. They lifted their heads higher, scanning the bazaar. Kiyoshi tried to help, but she had no idea what to look for. East by northeast, Rongi said. They're listening to someone speak. Sure enough, the people gathered in that corner of the bazaar had their backs turned, showing Dao broadswords or other weapons strapped to their torsos. They nodded intently, absorbing whatever message was being preached to them. Someone found the leader a stool or a crate because he stepped upward to reveal an ugly face bisected by a leather strap. Lek and Karima both swore loudly. We've got to get out of here, Lek said. Now. What's the problem, Rangi said. The problem is we shouldn't have come here, Karima said. We've got to leave town as fast as possible. Don't make eye contact, Lex said as Kiyoshi tried to get one last glance at the man. The strap looked like it was holding his nose in place. His speech had reached a fever pitch, his jaws working up and down like he had a chunk of meat between them. Strangely, he had a moon peach blossom tucked into his collar. She didn't have time to see any more details. They hustled back the way they came, only to run into someone in the exact same spot as the earlier encounter they'd witnessed. That blind spot was a death trap. Lex's face fell in despair. He backed up a few steps and bowed sharply, using the same fist overhand salute from when he'd greeted Kyoshi for the first time. So did Karima and Wong. Uncle Mock, they said in chorus, keeping their heads lowered. The man they waited on for a response was dressed in plain merchant's robes. His spotlessness stood out in the dusty filth of the town. He was strikingly handsome, with narrow eyes resting over fine cheekbones. And there was a moon peach blossom tucked into his lapel. He couldn't have been older than Karima. Kiyoshi didn't understand why they were calling him uncle. 
Bullet Leck, Uncle Muck said. And friends. You made the long journey from Chameleon Bay. It had been too long since we felt the embrace of our brethren, Leck said, trembling. In the short time she'd known him, Kyoshi had never heard the boy speak with such deference or fear. And you brought extra bodies? Mok eyed the two new members of the group. Rungi had already matched the bows of the others, calculating that sometimes it was better to keep quiet and play along. Kyoshi tried to do the same, but not without Mok catching her using the wrong hands at first. Fresh fish, Karima explained, raising her head only slightly. We're still beating respect and tradition into them. Kyoshi, Rangi, this is our elder, Mok the accountant. There was no mention of an elder Mok in the journal. As far as Kyoshi knew, her parents were the elders of the group. See that you do, Mok said with what he deemed a warm smile. Without our codes, we are nothing but animals begging for fences. It's fortuitous that you're here, for I have business to discuss with you. How lucky we are, Wong said. If it rankled him, bowing to a younger man, he kept it to himself. Kiyoshi noticed that Lao Gu had managed to disappear yet again. She wondered if it was solely so he didn't have to call Mok uncle. Let's discuss it tonight, Mok said. Why don't you join me as my guests at the challenge platform? When there's this many people in town, blood runs high. Should be fun. It would be our distinguished honor, uncle, Rongi said, beating the others to the punch. Our gratitude for the invitation. Mok beamed. Fire Nation. It's wonderful how respect comes so naturally to them. He reached out and knocked Lex's head wrap to the ground so he could tousle the boy's hair. I remember when I first met this one he said as he fixed Kyoshi with his slitted gaze. His fingers gripped Lex's scalp, yanking and twisting his head around, making sure it hurt. He was such a mouthy little brat, but he learned how to act. Lex put up with the manhandling without a noise. Mock cast him to the side like an apple core. I hope you're an equally quick study, he said to Kyoshi, making a clicking noise with his teeth. After Mock left, no one spoke. They waited for Lek to pick up his hat off the ground and smooth his hair. His eyes were red from more than dust. Kiyoshi had questions, but she was afraid of saying them out loud in the street. She knew exactly what kind of man the accountant was. Genju had once implemented a policy that any member of the staff, no matter how lowly, could talk to him personally about any household concern. Kiyoshi saw the gesture of kindness devolve into some of the servants ratting each other out over minor grievances, hoping to curry favor. She knew now that had been his intent all along. The longhouse slined streets of Hujiang felt like the walls of the mansion during the worst of the paranoia. 
she had no doubt that a careless word risked making it to Mock's ears. She followed her group to a termite-eaten inn that hadn't been painted since Yang Chen was alive. Many of the outlaws they passed along the way had moon peach blossoms in various states of freshness placed somewhere on their person. She couldn't believe how dumb she was not to have noticed before. They paid for a single room and tromped up the stairs, a funeral procession. Inside their lodgings, the bare planks of the floor had been oiled by the touch of human skin. There weren't enough beds if they were planning to sleep here tonight. This is one of the tighter-built houses, Karima said after she shut the door and slumped against a wall. It'll be safe to talk as long as you don't shout. Wong stuck his head out the window and did a full sweep of the street below, craning his head upward to check the roof. He pulled himself back in and latched the shutters closed. I suppose you want an explanation, he said. Those hard times we mentioned back in Chameleon Bay, Karima said. They were pretty hard. After your parents died, Jess's bison escaped, and we never saw him again. Kyoshi understood that much. The link between air nomads and their flying companions was so strong that the animals would normally run away and rejoin wild herds if they lost their airbender. It was a complete miracle that Pung Pung had stuck around to help her. We were trapped in the wrong city with too many debts to the wrong people, Karima continued, ignoring the irony that, by most standards, they were the wrong people. We were desperate, so we accepted the Autumn Bloom Society as our elders in exchange for some favors and cash. The peach flower guys, Wong said. Moon peaches normally bloom in spring, but then again, these were Daofei, not farmers. I take it this group is now beholden to the Autumn Bloom, Rangi said. It seemed like a safe move at the time, Karima said. After the Yellownecks scattered, there were so many smaller societies grubbing for the scraps. Mock and the Autumn Bloom started off as nothing special. But then, they began to squeeze the other outfits. And by squeeze, we mean crush them to a pulp and suck on the blood stains, Wong said. They were barely concerned with turning a profit, Karima said, shaking her head at the greatest outrage of all. The law hasn't caught wind of them yet, because they've yet to make any big plays above ground. Well, I can guarantee you that's about to change, Rongi said. What we saw in the bazaar was a campaign muster, a recruitment drive. Mock has big plans ahead. And we're signed up now, Karima said. If we disobey a summons by our sworn elders, our name will be worth less than mud. We'll be worse off than before we met the autumn bloom. Plus, he'll, you know, kill us, Wong said. Lek thumped the back of his head against the wall. Mock owns us now, he said. He sounded like he was speaking through an empty gourd. 
Our independence was Jessa and Hark's pride. And we threw it away because of me. Lek, Karima said sharply. You were injured and would have died without treatment. We've been over this. Stung by a buzzard wasp. Lex said to Kyoshi and Rongi. He laughed with a bitterness that had to have been developed over many nights of reflection. Can you believe it? Like I was fated to be this group's downfall. Jessa and Hark would have made the same decision in a heartbeat, Karima said. Kyoshi's breath rushed in and out through her nose, slowly at first, and then faster and faster, until her lungs felt like they'd escaped through the holes in her skull. She remembered scraping her head against the frozen ground when she was little, trying to seek relief for the fever blazing within her body. She remembered trying to walk again after untreated sickness sapped her muscles, not being certain if the shaking would ever go away. Was it possible to enter the Avatar state through sheer contempt? She stared at the Daofei, lost in their own histories. What did they know, huh? What did they know? They'd had each other. Family willing to make sacrifices. She had no doubt that Jessa and Hark would have done anything for their gang. Just not their daughter. Sworn ties trumped blood ties. Wasn't that the lesson that needed to be etched into her bones? Oh, boo-hoo, Kyoshi snapped. How pathetic of you. They turned their heads toward her. She refused to look at any one of them, instead staring at a blank spot on the wall where a knot had fallen out of the wood, leaving a dent in the plank. So, your choices had consequences, Kyoshi said. That's not the definition of a raw deal. That's life. You made your bed with Mox, and I made mine with yours. I should be the one complaining. She wished she had a spitting habit, so she could add the appropriate color to what she was saying. If he wants us to show up tonight, then we show up tonight. We do whatever he wants us to do. And then, we all can get what we came here for. She ended her statement a hair's breadth from shouting. A long silence followed. Kyoshi's got a point, Karima said. The wall creaked as she took her shoulder off it. We have no choice but to take things one step at a time. She didn't have to be so mean, Wong muttered. After Kyoshi's outburst, Rungi asked the others for a moment alone with her. They filed out like sullen children. The room transformed from too small to too big. Don't yell at me, Kyoshi said preemptively. None of this autumn bloom nonsense was in the journal. And yet here we are anyway, Rongi said. She seemed at a loss for what to say. She pointed in different directions to emphasize rants she hadn't made yet. Eventually, she settled for a question. Do you know what it's like watching you sink deeper into this muck? I'm doing what's necessary, Kyoshi said. If you want me to make faster progress, then let's go find an isolated spot and practice more firebending. 
Kyoshi, you're not listening to me. Rongi instinctively lowered her voice to protect their secret. You're the Avatar. I remember, Rongi. Do you? She said. Do you really? Because the last time I checked, the Avatar is supposed to be shaping the world for the good of humans and spirits, not risking their neck to help a bunch of second-story thieves pay off their debts. She held back from punching the nearest wall. Did you know that the Avatar is supposed to be able to commune with their past lives, gaining access to the wisdom of centuries? She said. With the right lessons, you could have been asking Yang Chen herself for guidance right now. But no, you don't have that option, because my guess is that spiritual teachers are a little hard to come by in our current social circle. Rongi waved her hand around at the room, at Hu Jiang, at the Taihua Mountain themselves. To see you here, it kills me. The fact that you're stuck here, where no one knows who you truly are, makes me die a little inside with each passing moment. You're meant to have the best of everything. And instead, you have this. She rubbed at the creases in her forehead with her fingers. A Dalfe town. A normal avatar would have been responsible for wiping this encampment off the face of the earth. So she was upset about Kiyoshi neglecting her duties. And nothing more. Rungi wanted a normal avatar. Not whatever Kiyoshi was. She's a true believer. Yoon's words came back like he was standing beside her, whispering in her ear. Rangi couldn't handle any more disgrace to the office. Kiyoshi was poor raw material for an avatar to begin with, and her selfish choices had only defiled the position further. Rangi, Kiyoshi's heart felt harder than it ever had, dull metal weighing her chest down. The world waited years for an avatar. It can wait a little longer. And so can you. She thought she heard a little puff of breath come from behind Rongi's hands. But when the firebender lowered her arms, she was as calm and stony as the mountain. You're right, Rongi said. After all, I'm just your bodyguard. I have to do what you say. Nightfall did Hu Jiang a favor in appearance. Unlike honest folk who went to bed soon after the sun went down, the Daofei settlement lit up with torchlight to continue business. The slope of the mountain spread out below the inn looked like it had attracted a cloud of fireflies. A meal of rice gruel and dried sweet potato did little to help them relax. Before they left the inn, Lek tightened the thongs covering his sleeves with such ferocity that Kiyoshi was afraid his hands would go purple. Are you okay? She asked. I'm worried about Pung Pung is all, he said defiantly. Don't let it slip that we have her. Mog will probably kill us and try to tame her himself. It made more and more sense, the degree to which outlaws coveted a sky bison. Flight was normally a feat restricted to the pure of heart. As an airbender willing to sully herself with dirty work, 
Kiyoshi's mother must have been in high demand. The streets were emptier than during the day. The Daofei had gathered inside drink houses, and drink houses seemed to comprise half the town. Kiyoshi could hear laughter and arguments, and poorly composed poetry spilling from the windows they passed. She imagined Lao Gu was in one of the taverns, swindling for booze. Or indulging in his other hobby. They came to a house bigger than the others, a broad high barn that shook with noise. The shouting inside rose and fell in waves, punctuated with cries of delight or disappointment. Another man, wearing a peach flower in his hat, greeted them at the door. Uncle Mock is waiting for you on the balcony, he said as he bowed. Going inside, they were immediately absorbed by a throng of spectators. The center of the floor held a large wooden platform covered with a tightly drawn layer of canvas held down with ropes, giving the structure the appearance of a great drum. Two men circled each other warily on top, stepping through stances, refusing to blink as sweat gathered on their faces. Leitai, Karima said to Kiyoshi. Ever seen one before? She hadn't. She knew of earth-bending tournaments with a similar concept. Knock the opponent off the platform and you win. But this stage was made of unbendable material, and the two men were fighting bare-knuckled and empty-handed. Throwing the opponent off would require closing the distance and getting to grips in ways benders normally disregarded. Leck had mentioned a weapons portion of the evening. Now must have been the unarmed combat rounds serving as a warm-up. The two men charged each other, fists cracked against skulls. One of them got the better of the exchange and followed up with a devastating kick to the side of his opponent. Liver shot, Kiyoshi heard Rongi mutter. It's over. She'd seen the outcome before the loser did. He tried to resume his fighting stance, but couldn't raise his arms. In a slow, teetering arc that reminded Kiyoshi of a cut tree, he fell to the surface of the platform, clutching his torso. Kiyoshi expected the standing man to peacock in victory, spend some time basking in the adulation of the crowd. Instead, he pounced on his downed opponent, who was clearly unable to continue, and began punching him viciously in the head. Here's a lesson for you square folk, Wong said. It's over when the winner says it's over. Kiyoshi had to turn away. She heard dull, wet thuds interspersed with the cheers of the crowd and nearly threw up on her feet. She was listening to a man get beaten to death. There was a round of boos and she looked up. The man left standing had decided to stop the assault, though Kiyoshi could tell the decision was less about mercy and more about saving energy. He went back to one corner of the platform where attendees had placed a stool for him to sit. He held out his hand, and a cup of tea appeared in it. Being the champion came with some perks. Two volunteers carried off his vanquished opponent by the arms and legs. Only a cough of blood spray gave any indication the man was still alive. Kiyoshi wanted to get this over with as fast as possible. Where's Mok, she said. 
There, Karima pointed to the second level. Kyoshi's suspicions were correct. This place was a barn. The balcony was a converted hayloft. Mok sat on a giant throne-like chair that had to have been lifted into place with pulleys. Beside him stood the strap-nosed man from the bazaar, the one who'd been recruiting outlaws with spiritual zeal. The Flying Opera Company went up the old-fashioned way, and they had to do it one at a time. The three more experienced members went first. Kiyoshi felt eyes on her as she climbed the long ladder, vulnerable with each bounce and sway of the wooden struts. Mock had no guards with him, other than the street preacher, and the others had told her neither of them were benders. Either Daofei were stingy when it came to personal protection, or they preferred to display strength this way. This is my lieutenant, Brother Y, Mock said, gesturing to the wild-eyed man. You will pay him the same respect that you do me. Kiyoshi bowed along with the others, but Y was silent. He stared at the group with seething contempt, like he detected the taint of evil buried deep in their bones. She became conscious of her flayed leg that had scabbed over, of the waking nightmare she'd pushed to the back of her mind. But why paid her no special attention? He despised them all equally. Mock, on the other hand, singled Kyoshi out. New girl, he said. You seemed a little bloodshy just now. Not a trait I like in my subordinates. Wong and Karima tensed up. They'd warned her about the need to keep a certain mask on, and she hadn't taken them seriously enough. Kiyoshi tried to think of something to say that would placate Mok. She's tough when it counts, Uncle, Lek interjected. I personally saw Kiyoshi wipe the floor with a whole squad of lawmen back in Chameleon Bay. Mok made a signal with his finger. In a motion so smooth that it looked rehearsed, Y pulled out a knife, grabbed Lek by the hand, and slashed him across the palm. Lek stared disbelievingly at the fresh red wound for a moment. Funny, Mock said. I don't think I was talking to you. A spatter of blood landed on the floor. Lek doubled over, clutching his hand to his stomach and stifled a scream. Wong and Karima's faces were white with anger, but they maintained their positions, shoulders hunched in deference. Kiyoshi forced herself to look this time, to watch Lek suffer. Mock was testing her, she realized. Her weakness had gotten her companion hurt, and this was the price. Her limbs went cold as a vision of the future swept her in its embrace. She was going to sort this mock one day, neatly on the shelf, right below Jenju. Him and Y both. They'd have a place of honor in her heart. But for now, the face she gave them was made of stone. She saw Lex straighten up and tug his sleeve over the wound, clenching his jaw and fist tight. He stared at the space between his shoes. Other than the bloodstain blooming at the end of his shirt, she would have been hard-pressed to tell that he was injured. Better this time, Mock said to Kiyoshi. Unless for some reason you don't like the boy. 
she made a non-committal little shrug. There's not many people I hate, uncle. The truth made it easier to remain calm. A fast learner indeed. Mock caught a glimpse of something interesting happening below. The crowd roared, half of them booing, and the other half expressing wild approval for whatever it was. He grinned and turned his full attention back to the center of the barn. Not as fast, though, as your firebender friend. Kiyoshi followed his gaze. It took all of her newfound willpower not to shriek in horror. Rongi was standing on the fighting platform. The beautiful thing about Leitai is that anyone can issue a challenge, Mok said, simply by doing what she's doing. Kiyoshi had to look at the empty ladder again to make sure she wasn't dreaming, that Rangi hadn't followed right behind her as usual. To confirm that she could have gone so long without noticing her friend's presence. The champion, still sitting in the opposite corner, cocked his head in interest. Rangi met his gaze as she stripped off her bracers and shoulder pieces, throwing her heirloom armor to the ground like a fruit peel. Ignoring howls and whistles from the crowd, she disrobed until she was in the sleeveless white tunic she wore beneath her outer layers. Rangi was above the average height for a girl. The muscles in her arms and back were well-formed and strong from years of training. But her opponent was taller and outweighed her by a third, if not more. She looked so tiny and vulnerable on the canvas, a small flower in the corner of a painting. Kiyoshi nearly jumped down from the hayloft to throw herself between the combatants. But Karima and Wong gave her the same glance and imperceptible head shake from when Lek was cut. Don't. You'll make it worse. The champion ran a hand down his braided queue and squinted at Rongi with beady eyes. He dabbed himself with a towel and flung it behind him. As he rose, his attendant plucked the stool off the platform. He'd rested enough. The man raised his chin and said a few words that Kiyoshi couldn't hear, but she guessed their meaning well enough. No firebending. Rangi nodded in agreement. A lance went through Kiyoshi's heart as the two of them approached each other. The champion didn't take a stance immediately. If he took the challenge of a young girl too seriously, he'd lose face. Rongi let him know how wise that decision was by whirling a kick at the knee he was about to put his weight on. Only pure reflex saved him. He snatched his leg back before it snapped in half and stumbled awkwardly around the platform, a drunk that had lost his footing. The crowd jeered. This girl... Mock said with a tone of appreciation that sent fresh loathing down Kiyoshi's throat. The champion righted himself and took up a deep stance. The disciplined movement in his lower body was at odds with the wrath coursing through his face. As if to taunt him further, Rangi slid forward fearlessly until she was within his striking distance. Her expression was cool, impassive. It didn't change when the man launched a flurry of blows. She read his limbs like the lines of a book, letting his momentum pass right by her as she made pivots so small and sharp that her feet squeaked against the canvas. 
After he missed a straight punch that hung over her neck like a yoke, she bumped him in the armpit with her shoulder, timing it with his retraction. He went flying back, worse than before, his feet making a clownish attempt to support him. Kiyoshi's hope rose, forcing her to her tiptoes as he neared the edge. If he fell off the platform then, this bad dream would end. He managed to catch himself. Kiyoshi heard a swear come from someone other than her. Rangi followed her opponent to the boundary, but seemed unconcerned about pushing him over. She could have ended it with a nudge. The man saw this and lost his composure. He lashed out with a wild punch devoid of technique. It was so telegraphed that Kiyoshi could have ducked under it. But in that instant, Rangi looked upward and locked eyes with Kiyoshi. The blow struck her squarely in the face. She let it happen. She tumbled across the platform and landed in the center, a lifeless heap. The weight difference had done its work. Kiyoshi's cry was drowned out by roar of the crowd. The champion wiped his mouth as he sauntered over to Rangi's body. The girl had humiliated him. He was going to take his time destroying her. Kiyoshi screamed to the rafters, invisible and unheard in the frenzy. Nothing mattered anymore but Rangi. She couldn't lose the center of her being like this. She would have obliterated the world to undo what was happening. Only Wong's hands clamping down on Kyoshi's shoulders held her in place as the man raised his foot high above Rangi's skull. There was a blur of motion and the sound of muffled snapping. Kyoshi's mind caught up with her eyes. Her comprehension played out like a series of pictures changed between blinks. Rangi had spun out from under the man's foot, rotating on her shoulders like a top, and wrapped her body around his standing leg. She'd made a subtle twist and his limb shattered along every plane it could. The champion lay out on the canvas, writhing in pain, his leg reduced to an understuffed stocking attached to his body. Rangi stood over him, bleeding from the mouth. Other than the single punch she'd taken, she was fine. She hadn't broken a sweat. The spectators were silent. Her footsteps bounced off the canvas like drumbeats, she hopped lightly off the platform and gathered up her armor. A single person clapping broke the pall. It was Mok, applauding furiously. It gave the crowd permission to react. They whooped and hollered for their new champion, surging toward her. A single glare made them hold off on slapping her back or lifting her under their shoulders, but they got as close as they could, forming a little ring of appreciation around her. Rangi made her way over to the ladder and climbed up with one hand, her gear bundled under the other arm. Her head peeked up over the edge of the hayloft, and then the rest of her body. She tossed the armor into the corner and bowed. No one responded. They all waited on her next move, Mock and Y included. Rangi shrugged at the unasked question. It seemed like fun, she said calmly. Kyoshi knew that was complete and utter bullpig. There was no reason for her to have such a lapse in judgment, to commit such a mind-bogglingly stupid act. Kyoshi wanted to punch Rangi so hard that she'd land on her rear end back in Yokoya.
She was going to throttle the firebender until flame came out of her ears. Mock slapped his thighs and burst into laughter. A future boss in the making, he said. Dine with me tonight. I'll tell you the plans I have in store. How could we refuse, Uncle? Rangi said with the biggest, sweetest, falsest smile Kiyoshi had ever seen. Attendants carried chairs for everyone up the ladder with great difficulty, followed by a table and then food and drink. Unlike the large manners of legitimate society, there was no servant class here. Junior toughs and swordsmen did the task, their weapons clanking in their scabbards as they juggled trays like rookie maids. No one let on that they'd already eaten. The meal was an attempt to mimic a wealthy sage's table with more than one course. Shaped flour paste substituted for ingredients that would have been impossible to get in the mountains, and yellowing vegetables made up the rest. There was plenty of wine, though. Mock sat with his back facing the edge of the balcony. The fights no longer interested him. Judging by the clash of metal coming from below, the challenges had moved from unarmed combat into the weapons section. The occasional scream and gurgle made it difficult to concentrate. Have any of you heard of Tei Si Hung? He asked, dropping the endless displays of puffery and dominance. As foolhardy as Rangi's fight had been, there was no denying she'd changed the energy of the meeting. Tay Si Hung, Governor Tay. Kiyoshi had never seen him in person at the mansion, but the last gifts she remembered him sending to Yun were an original unabridged copy of Poems of Lahima and a single precious white dragon seed. Governor in the eastern provinces, she said, likes to read and drink tea. Certainly isn't hurting for money. Very good. Mock said, impressed, even though she could have been describing half of the rich old men in the Earth Kingdom. Tay's a little unique among prefectural leaders. He's not so quick with the axe when it comes to sentencing crimes. He made a hacking motion to the back of his own neck. How lighthearted they were being. Mock took a sip of wine and smiled when Kiyoshi refilled his cup without being told. He keeps prisoners instead, he went on. His family inherited an old mansion dating back to the 30-somethingth Earth King, complete with a courthouse and a jail where criminals could serve out their sentences, instead of facing swift modern justice. I believe the romantic notion of mercy went to his head. Sounds nice of him, Rangi said, a bit insouciantly. Her face had begun to swell, her words slurring as her lip grew puffy. The other members of their company had willingly retreated into the background, letting her and Kiyoshi do the talking. They were playing the tiles they'd been dealt. Don't go putting up statues just yet, Mock said. He's had one of our own locked up for eight years. Behind him, Y positively vibrated, his body thrumming with rage. We need to get our man out of Tay's cells, Mock said. That's what this job is about. A jailbreak on a fortified position is going to take a lot of bodies, more than the Autumn Bloom has sworn members. So 
so we're calling in our associates. Every favor will be repaid in one night. This prisoner, is he important? Rangi asked. Does he have information you don't want leaking? For the first time tonight, Mok looked displeased with her. This mission is about brotherhood, he said. First and foremost, my sworn brother has been rotting in the hands of the law for almost a decade. It's taken that long for the autumn bloom to grow strong enough to attempt a rescue mission. But why and I have never forgotten him. His passion was real, carved into his spirit with deep grooves. He resembled Lek when the boy talked about Kyoshi's parents. Propped up by an iron framework larger than himself, Kyoshi wondered if she'd appear the same if she ever spoke about Kelsong at length to anyone. She hoped so. Apologies, uncle, Rangi said. I thought knowing the facts would be helpful to our cause. The only facts I need you concentrating on concern how your group is going to help spring my man out of Governor Tay's prison, Mok said. Our group? Kiyoshi preemptively tilted in apology for not understanding. It sounded like we were to band together with the autumn bloom in this mission. Originally, yes. But after giving it some thought, that would be a waste of an elite team of benders such as yourselves. A two-pronged assault should double our chances. I have numbers at my disposal, but not stealth or bending prowess. While my men beat down the doors in a frontal assault, I want the Flying Opera Company to take the quiet route. Whoever succeeds first, it doesn't matter to me. Rangi was still in professional intelligence-gathering mode. Are there plans to Tay's palace? Layouts? Staff schedules? Any inside people we can count on? Mok's face darkened. He kicked the table away, sending dishes clattering to the floor. What do you think this is, a robbery? He snapped. Figure out your approach on your own. Kiyoshi realized why he was so angry. Rangi's questions had exposed him as not much of a tactician. He knew nothing of leadership besides making demands and doling out cruelties when they weren't met. Control by tantrum, Kiyoshi thought. She had a label for the way Mok wielded power. He stood up and dusted himself off. I plan on being at Governor Tay's palace 30 days from now with my forces. I know how swift the Flying Opera Company tends to be. So if you arrive early, you should have all the time you need to prepare yourselves. But I don't want you acting on your own before we arrive. Do you hear me? I hear many things about you. Of course, uncle. Kiyoshi said. The clash of steel and a scream filled the air as she bowed. The five of them stood outside their inn, not knowing what to say to each other. Fresh distance had come between them. Self-consciousness reigned supreme. Kiyoshi broke the silence. Can we agree to leave this forsaken town first thing in the morning? Yes, Wong said. I'm going to drink myself stupid until then. If I run into any of you, 
I'm going to pretend I don't know you, even if you challenge me. He frowned. Especially if you challenge me. Wong stomped off into the darkness, disappearing beyond the glow of the nearest lantern. Lek hadn't spoken a word on the way back. His sleeve was plastered to his palm with dried blood, a good sign as far as his wound was concerned. But he was possessed by a rigid coldness that had Kyoshi worried. Lek, she said before he vanished too, inside his own head. Thank you for standing up for me. He blinked and looked at her as if they'd only met a minute ago. Why wouldn't I, he said, caught waking up from a dream. I have to take care of his hand, Karima said. She looked at Rongi. I'm not the best healer, so it'll be a while before I can get to your face. I don't need it, Rongi said. She turned and walked away in the opposite direction of Wong, down the slope the town was built on. Rongi, Kyoshi snapped. The firebender didn't listen to her. She was Kyoshi's bodyguard. She was obligated to listen to her. Get back here, Rongi. After tonight's display, she's the safest person in Hujiang, Karima said. There was a sly edge to her smile. But I still think you should go after her. Having grown up in Yokoya, Kiyoshi had walked enough hills for two lifetimes. Going down fast threatened to buckle her ankles, strained at her knees. She found Rongi sitting at the edge of the shallow lake, less by light and more by heat. The firebender was a dark silhouette curled up against the lapping water. Kiyoshi entertained the notion of shoving her straight in. You want to tell me what that was about? she yelled. Rongi sneered at the question. Mok was treating us like dung, and now, slightly less so. I impressed Adalfe. Hasn't that been our goal? My mother's gang belonged to my mother. Mok is a rabid animal whom we have no leverage with. It was a stupid risk. Rongi got to her feet. She'd been letting her toes dangle in the water, and now she stood ankle deep in it. Of course it was, she said. She nearly rammed her finger into Kiyoshi's chest out of instinct, but caught herself. She wrung her hands out and forced them to remain at her side. I did exactly what you've been doing this whole time. Let me tell you something, Rongi said. I blacked out when I got hit. If I hadn't woken up quickly, that man would have killed me. Kyoshi's mind went white with fury. After the fight ended, she'd assumed that Rongi had been faking unconsciousness to lure her opponent in. She wanted to march back to the barn and break the rest of his limbs. You know what you felt, watching me lie on the canvas, Rongi said. That helplessness, that sensation of your anchor being cut loose, that's what I've been feeling, watching you, every single minute since we left Yokoya. I got on that platform so you could see it from my perspective. I had no idea what else would get through to you. She kicked at the surface of the lake, slicing a wave between them. For an instant, she looked like a waterbender. 
I watch you throw yourself headlong into danger over and over again. And for what? Some misguided attempt to bring Janju to justice? Do you know what that even means anymore? It means he's gone for good, Kyoshi snapped. No longer walking this earth. That's what it has to mean. Why? Rangi said, her eyes begging and combative at once. Why do you need to do this so badly? Because then I don't have to be afraid of him anymore, Kiyoshi screamed. I'm scared, all right? I'm scared of him, and I don't know what else will make it go away. Her words carried over the surface of the lake to any man and spirit who might be listening. Kyoshi's obsession wasn't the mark of a great hunter on a relentless stalk of her quarry. That was the lie that had sustained her. The truth was that she was a frightened child, running in different directions and hoping it would all work out for the best. She couldn't feel safe with Jinju loose. She heard it again, those soft, sharp little breaths. Rongi was crying. Kyoshi fought back her own tears. They wouldn't have been as graceful. Talk to me, she said. Please. It wasn't supposed to be like this, Rongi said. She tried to smother herself with the palm of her hand. It shouldn't have gone this way. Kyoshi understood her friend's disappointment. The shining new era the world was supposed to get after so many years of strife. The champion whom Rangi had trained to protect had been stolen from them and replaced with... with Kyoshi. I know, she said, her heart aching. Yoon would have been a much better... No! Forget Yoon for once. Forget being the Avatar. Rongi lost the battle to restrain herself and smacked Kyoshi hard across her collar. It's not supposed to be this way for you. Kyoshi went silent, mostly because Rongi had hit her too hard, but also from surprise. You think you don't deserve peace and happiness and good things, but you do, Rongi yelled. You, Kyoshi, not the Avatar, but you. She closed the distance and wrapped her arms around Kyoshi's waist. The embrace was a clever way to hide her face. Do you have any idea how painful it's been for me to follow you on this journey, where you're so determined to punish yourself? She said. Watching you treat yourself like an empty vessel for revenge, when I've known you since you were a servant girl who couldn't bend a pebble. The Avatar can be reborn, but you can't, Kyoshi. I don't want to give you up to the next generation. I couldn't bear to lose you. Kyoshi realized she'd had it all wrong. Rangi was a true believer. But her greatest faith had been for her friends, not her assignment. She pulled Rangi in closer. She thought she heard a slight, 
contented sigh come from the other girl. I wish I could give you your due, Rangi muttered after some time had passed. The wisest teachers, armies to defend you, a palace to live in. Kiyoshi raised an eyebrow. The Avatar gets a palace? No, but you deserve one. I don't need it, Kiyoshi said. She smiled into Rangi's hair, the soft strands caressing her lips. And I don't need an army. I have you. Psh, Rangi scoffed. A lot of good I've been so far. If I were better at my job, you would never feel scared. Only loved. Adored by all. Kyoshi gently nudged Rangi's chin upward. She could no more prevent herself from doing this than she could keep from breathing, living, fearing. I do feel loved, she declared. Rangi's beautiful face shone in reflection. Kyoshi leaned in and kissed her. A warm glow mapped Kyoshi's veins, eternity distilled in a single brush of skin. She thought she would never be more alive than now. And then, the shock of hands pushing her away. Kyoshi snapped out of her trance, aghast. Rangi had flinched at the contact, repelled her. Viscerally, reflexively. Oh no, oh no, this couldn't, not after everything they'd been through, this couldn't be how it. Kyoshi shut her eyes until they hurt. She wanted to shrink until she vanished within the cracks of the earth. She wanted to become dust and blow away in the wind. But the sound of laughter pulled her back. Rangi was coughing drowning herself with her own tears and mirth. She caught her breath and retook Kiyoshi by the hips, turning to the side, offering up the smooth, unblemished skin of her throat. That side of my face is busted up, stupid, she whispered in the darkness. Kiss me where I'm not hurt. The Beast the morning sunrise had never been so warm. Kyoshi had slept better on the hard-packed shore of the lake without a bedroll than she had any of the nights spent camping between Chameleon Bay and Hujiang. Perhaps that was because she had her own fire now. She didn't have to share it with anyone else. Rangi murmured into the base of her neck, a soft thrumming sensation. A shadow loomed over them both. Kyoshi blinked until she saw a pair of leather boots next to her head. Karima squatted down closer to their level, her hands on her knees and her chin in her hands. Have a nice night, the waterbender said, batting her eyelashes. She grinned wider than the open sky. Kiyoshi rose to her elbows, 
Rongi slid off her chest and thumped her head on the ground, startling awake. The leg she'd thrown across Kyoshi's body reluctantly unwound itself. Must have been nice, Karima said, barely able to contain her laughter. Sleeping under the stars, just two friends, having a close private moment of friendship. Kyoshi rubbed the drowsiness out of her face. She could leap to her feet and deny everything. She had no idea what would happen if she and Rongi kept pulling on this thread together. Few people in the Earth Kingdom would react anywhere near as well as Karima. But ever since that day in Yokoya, when she'd learned her fate while her hands were still dusted in white flour, her life had been an endless refusal full of secrets unhappily kept to their destructive ends. She was sick of denying herself. Not this time. This time would be different. A steady thought. The drumbeat in her head and heart let her know the truth. She would never back down from how she felt about Rongi. Rongi caught her gaze and smiled, making a slight, barely there nod. A ready-if-you-are signal. She was. And they were. It's exactly what it looks like, Kiyoshi said. You have a problem? Karima shrugged and waved her fingers, dipping into a moment of quiet seriousness. I'm not the type to give you grief over whom you love, she said. Her mirth returned immediately. I am, however, going to give you tremendous amounts of grief about romancing within your own brotherhood. That's like doing laundry in the outhouse. It never ends clean. Kiyoshi got up. First off, we knew each other before we met you. Second, my parents founded this stupid gang, and they were obviously a pair. Good to see you carrying on the family tradition, Karima said. Jessa and Hark were mad about each other. Nothing could douse the moment for Kiyoshi like a reminder of her parents. She wondered if they still kissed, made eyes, whispered jokes after they'd dropped her in Yakoya. Perhaps unburdening themselves had made their relationship all the sweeter. She didn't want to ask. The darkness of her abandonment must have boiled to her surface as the three of them trudged uphill back toward town, because Rongi ran the back of her nails down Kiyoshi's hand, a playful and teasing distraction that held more meaning now than a hundred volumes of history. Kiyoshi nearly tripped and fell on her face. If this was what being true to herself felt like, she could never go back. Her heart was nestled somewhere above her in the nearest cloud. She wanted to scoop up Rangi in her arms and run, stepping higher and higher, using that technique she still had to learn, until they found it. Kiyoshi was so happy that Hujiang itself looked prettier in the new light of day. Splotches of color caught her eye that weren't visible in the torchlight of the previous evening, blues and reds from beyond the Earth Kingdom. The longhouses, she could see now, had individual touches, like carved shrine alcoves 
and Fire Nation rugs hung over doors. It reminded her of the way ships would get personalities imprinted on them by their sailors. Dust had yet to be kicked up by the day's business, and the air was cleaner, easier to breathe without the dingy haze. They strolled through town. When was the last time Kyoshi had a stroll? Had she ever? And sidestepped the strewn bodies of men who slept off hangovers or beatings or both. Karima led them to one of the larger establishments, where she ducked through a door with one of its posts destroyed, like someone had been thrown out, but not very accurately. She returned moments later, bending a large blob of water that she had to have found inside. It rolled down the steps like a slug. Wong floated inside the reverse bubble, his head poking out the top. He snored comfortably. Wake up, Karima shouted. With a flick of her arms, the water froze. The big man jolted awake from the cold. He resembled a small iceberg with his face poking out of the summit. Leave me in this for a while, he said bleary-eyed. Karima liquefied the water again, dropping him to his feet and bent it away from his body, leaving him dry as a bone. She hurled the water back inside the building, where it landed with a giant splash. Someone inside screamed and sputtered. We've had enough of this town, she said. Then she grinned at Kyoshi and Rangi, without any attempt to hide the meaning in her stare. Or at least I have. Wong didn't get the chance to interpret her stage gestures. A loud crashing noise from somewhere near the bazaar punctured the silence of the morning. It sounded like a house might have collapsed. Birds rose into the sky, fluttering in distress. Rangi frowned and leaned her ear toward the disturbance. Was that a landslide? I don't know, Karima said cautiously. But the birds have the right idea. Now the clamor of men shouting in horror could be heard over the roof lines. Never wait to find out what the trouble is, Wong said, already jogging away from the source. By then, you're already too close. If that wasn't ancient wisdom, it should have been. They followed him briskly back toward the inn. Hopefully, Lek and Lao Go were both there, ready to fly. Judging by how fast the ruckus was catching up, they wouldn't have time to search the town on Pung Pung. A horrendous, snorting, choking sound rolled through the streets. Back in her mansion days, Kiyoshi had once seen an ambassador bring a pet poodle monkey that was so inbred in the name of cuteness that it had trouble breathing through its miniaturized snout. That was what she heard now, on a scale a thousand times larger. The exhortations of a creature that would never get its fill of air. Two men ran screaming out of a longhouse, right on their heels. An instant later, the building front exploded, planks and beams torn to shreds by a dark, wiry mass that writhed with fury. A rope or a whip flung out with the speed of a cable under tension and lashed the men across the back. They fell to the ground, skidding on their faces, momentum making their legs scorpion over their heads. Tway's gills, Karima shouted. 
What is that thing? Behind them was a beast that Kiyoshi had never seen the likes of before. A black and brown four-legged monstrosity that stood higher at the shoulder than some of the huts. It managed to be hulking with muscle and yet lissom as a serpent at the same time. Claws as long and sharp as sickle blades reaped at the ground, opening damp wounds under the dusty surface. But the most hideous part of the creature was its dark void of a face. The furry, elongated skull had no eyes, only a flowering pink snout that wriggled with its own fleshy protuberances. It was as if a parasite from another world had attached itself to the nose of an earthly beast and taken control over the entire animal. Two large dark holes, nostrils, sucked air in all directions until they pointed straight at Kiyoshi. She backed away slowly, ineffectually, surprised she could manage that. The nausea of terror chained her, robbed her of survival instinct. Her skin felt wet and cold. Again, was the only thought running through her mind. Again, Jenju had loosed a nightmare on her, an inhuman specter that would drag her away into the darkness, screaming. It had to be him. There was no one else who could have scraped the depths of her fear like this. Somehow, she knew in her bones it was he who taunted her with his living aberration. A wall of earth shot up between her and the animal. She hadn't bent it. What are you doing? Wong roared as he followed through on his attack. Either fight or run. Don't stand there where we can't help you. The monster clambered over the wall he made with ease, its claws letting it climb as fast as it ran. Karima pulled more water from a nearby trough and smashed at the beast's shoulders, trying to knock it off balance. Rangi kicked low sheets of flame at the places it tried to land its forepaws, reasoning that it was as effective to break an animal's root as it was a normal opponent. That's right, Kyoshi thought. I'm not alone this time. The street was wide enough to accommodate her earth-bending weakness. She knifed at the air in front of her, and the entire surface of the road began to grind and shift. A fissure opened, and one of the animal's paws fell in. If she could close the gap fast enough, she could pin it by the... The monster, rather than avoid the jaws of her trap, dove headfirst into the rift. Its entire body disappeared below ground, leaving a pile of castings behind. This thing can burrow. Karima sounded more aggrieved than afraid, like an experienced gambler discovering the table they'd joined was blatantly rigged against them. Kiyoshi felt vibrations beneath her. It was impossible not to with a creature that size, but they were indistinct and directionless. Not a help in this situation. Spread out, Rangi said, eyeing the ground. Shouldn't we stay close? Kiyoshi said. No, Rangi said. Then it'll get more than one of us in a single bite. Kiyoshi may have been feeling warm with newfound camaraderie for her gang, but no one had told Wong and Karima. After hearing Rangi, they immediately leaped onto the roof of the nearest house, elements trailing below the soles of their feet, leaving her and Kiyoshi down below. The soil loosened around them, a perfect circle caving in. 
Rangi tackled Kyoshi out of the center of the formation, boosting herself sideways with flame jets from her feet. They landed hard on their sides, shoulders bruising. The creature burst through the surface, rearing toward the sky, the ground giving birth to a shape of death that blacked out the sun above. There was a zipping sound, and then a thud. The animal screamed, and its claws came down short of Kiyoshi and Rangi's bodies. It shook its head furiously. Another impact, and this time, Kiyoshi saw it. A smooth, fist-sized stone had struck the beast hard on the tip of its sensitive nose, sending it reeling. She looked up and made out Lex's silhouette on the roof of their inn, the sun behind him shrouding his face. Move, maybe? He shouted. A hail of perfectly aimed stones gave them cover, each missile landing uncannily on the one spot that the animal seemed to feel pain, no matter how much it thrashed about. It backed away, trying to hide its nose. As Kyoshi and Rangi fled toward Lek, several arrows struck it in the hindquarters. It turned to face the new threat. The Daofei had gotten over their surprise and were now mobbing the beast, thrusting spears at it and pricking its fur with short bows. They sought the glory of bringing it down. The animal lashed out with its tongue, sending a row of men falling to the ground, but more swordsmen turned hunters stepped over their limp bodies to replace them. Kiyoshi didn't care to understand the bizarre scene playing out before her. She and the rest of the group ran for the hills. They arrived at Peng Peng's cave in the mountainside winded, their legs and lungs burning, to find Lao Gu feeding the bison a pile of cabbages. He tossed them one at a time, high in the air for Peng Peng to catch between her broad, flat teeth. There was probably no use asking him how he'd acquired the produce. A lot of help you were, Lek shouted. He was assuming, like Kiyoshi was at this point, that Lao Gu was completely aware of what had transpired. The old man gave him a pitying look. Fighting a Shursu? That's just a bad investment of effort. I left as soon as I felt it coming. You knew what that abomination was? Karima said. It's a legendary subterranean beast that hunts by scent, he explained dismissively, like they would have known this if they'd paid better attention to his ramblings. Supposedly, it can track its quarry across stone, water, dirt, thin air. In the old days, Earth kings would use them to execute their political enemies. For the traitor, let them be hounded by Shursu until they drop where they stand, far from their homes and the bones of their ancestors. Lao Gu fed Peng Peng another cabbage. Or at least that's how the saying went. Shershoes haven't been seen in the wild for at least a generation, so I assume this one was being used to hunt a fugitive, too. Same as in the days of yore. Kiyoshi felt Lek's gaze boring into her. It was going for you, he said. I could see it from the roof of the inn. It was sniffing out your scent. You brought it here. She hesitated. Had she been as smooth as Yoon, she could have come up with a convincing denial on the spot. Before she could say anything, 
She was preempted by the metallic clanking of blades rattling in their scabbards. They leaned over the cave ledge to see a party of swordsmen down below. At the back of the group, exhorting them onward, was Brother Y. Mock's inquisitor looked like he wished to speak with whomever he was searching for very much. I can explain, Kiyoshi said quickly. But maybe once we're in the air? There was silent and unanimous agreement as they scrambled onto Pung Pung. The truth took a back seat to survival. The Avatar's Masters Pung Pung graced the skies over the plains of Ba Sing Se. The impenetrable city watched them pass like a silent sentry, the monolithic brown walls a blank face devoid of features. Kyoshi watched the capital sail by. Somewhere in the center of those titanic fortifications was the Earth King, nominally the most powerful person on the continent, with armies to command and the wealth of the world at his disposal. Though she'd never dug deep into history lessons, she knew that the records were full of instances where avatars and earth kings came to each other's aid. And yet she couldn't go ask him for help. There were no means for a peasant to approach the earth king that wouldn't result in immediate refusal or capture or death. Moreover, courts and cities were Genju's realm. He'd spent decades cultivating influence among the bureaucrats of Ba Sing Se. Barging in there would be no better than surrendering to Governor Dung back in Chameleon Bay. She looked at her parents' gang. These were the only people she could trust, as sad as that was. Out there was a city that essentially belonged to her enemy. Her allies could fit on the back of a single bison. And they weren't happy with her right now. All right, spill it, Karima snapped. Who is this man you're feuding with? You said he was a rich and powerful sage. Which one exactly? Tell us the truth. Kiyoshi stared at the saddle floor. Before, she'd felt within her rights keeping his name a secret. But the decision seemed completely foolish in retrospect. Genju, Kiyoshi said weakly. Genju, the companion of Kuruk. The architect, Lao Gu said, rubbing his chin. You aim high, my dear. I'm impressed. The rest of them were not as amused. Their jaws dropped in chorus. Genju the gravedigger? Lek yelled. You picked a fight with the gravedigger? I didn't pick the fight, Kiyoshi protested. I wasn't lying when I said he killed two people I loved. Oh no, we believe that, Karima shouted. We can believe that plenty. That man has a higher body count than Septipox. And you ticked him off so badly that he sent a beast out of myth to track you all the way into the Taihua Mountains, Wong said with a sigh. We might as well jump off Pong Pong right now and save ourselves the trouble. Thanks a lot, you numbskull. Lex said. We had a chance of surviving, Mok. But if the Butcher of Julu Pass wants you feeding the worms, then it's only a matter of time before he puts you and us below ground. 
so Kiyoshi wasn't the only one terrified of him. It was a small comfort, but a comfort nonetheless that made her feel like she was standing on firmer footing. Outlaws were perhaps the one group who would understand how brutal and dangerous Jenju really was. She closed her eyes. She hadn't known these people for very long, but to her own surprise more than anyone's, she would have felt intolerably guilty if Jenju's efforts to capture her caused them any grievous harm. They deserved not to be swindled, was the way she'd put it. They were owed the full story. He's not trying to kill me, Kiyoshi said. He doesn't want me dead. Well, that would be new for him, Karima said. How are you so privy to his inner thoughts and goals? Because, she took a deep breath to steady herself. I'm the Avatar. It was the first time she'd ever knowingly said the truth out loud. Somehow she'd managed to avoid speaking those three specific words in that specific order to Rongi the night they fled Yokoya in the drenching rain. Rongi had already known the Avatar was either her or Yun, so context had sufficed. Kiyoshi's confession hung in the air, as visible as smoke. She waited for the rest of them to recover from the blow that had staggered Rongi, Kelsung, and everyone else who belonged to the small circle of knowledge at one point in time or another. They might have needed a moment to recalibrate their view of the world. Ha! Lex said. Ha! Or maybe they'd just laugh in her face. Lek rolled back on the floor of the saddle, finding her moment of ultimate honesty a good joke, a relief from his jangled nerves. You, the Avatar? Man, I have heard some whoppers, but that might be the best yet. I know I let you gloss over a bunch of the oaths, Karima said to her, but at least five of them are about never lying to your sworn family. She is the Avatar, Rangi said. Why do you think she has a Fire Nation bodyguard? Dunno, Wong said with a shrug. He pointed his thumb at Karima. Why do you think we've got her? The waterbender gave him a dirty look before continuing. Look, you can believe in your weird little two-person cult all you want, she said to Kiyoshi. Just tell us what you stole from the gravedigger. You wouldn't be the first servant who bungled a theft and had to flee from their angry boss. Kiyoshi couldn't believe it. She'd had it all wrong. She'd thought that her avatarhood was the final secret, a gilded treasure that needed to be kept in a series of locked chests until the exact right moment. It turned out that without proof, the information was worth less than the paper it was written on. She squeezed one of the fans in her belt out of frustration. Do you even bend all four elements? Wong said. Do you? I firebent once, she said, realizing how stupid she sounded as she said it. Under duress, it uh, came out of my mouth like dragon's breath. 
She thought about trying to do a fire fist, but it felt like a bad idea, given the lack of space and how badly her last one went. Yeah, I once got food poisoning from dodgy fireflakes too, Lex said. Doesn't mean I'm the reincarnation of Yang Chen. Well, I believe her, Lao Gu said with a proud upturned chin. Judging by the other's expressions, his endorsement had the opposite effect. Okay, okay, Karima said. Everyone calm down. Take a breather. Let's consider this rationally for a minute. Assuming she is the... Kyoshi, think fast! She'd uncorked her water skin with a sleight of hand. A pellet of liquid flew at Kyoshi's face. Kiyoshi made an undignified squeal that should have disqualified her from holding any office whatsoever. She still couldn't bend any piece of earth smaller than a house, and the water aimed at her eyes made her flinch like a prickle snake had wandered into her sleeping bag. She threw her arms over her face. Spirits above, Lek whispered. Her cheeks burned in shame. Sure, she looked bad, but that bad? Kiyoshi, Rangi said, breathless and thrilled. Kiyoshi. The fan she'd been holding had come out of her belt as she clenched up in surprise. She was gripping it the wrong way, like a dagger. The tip of the weapon pointed to the little blob of water hovering in midair. Is that you? Rangi said to Karima. The stunned waterbender shook her head. Rangi dove at Kiyoshi. The water fell on her back, splashing them both. She squeezed Kiyoshi in a ferocious embrace. You did it, she yelled. You bent another element. As Kiyoshi struggled to breathe with an ecstatic firebender wrapped around her neck, she stared at the fan in her hand. Her mother's weapon had made the difference somehow, in both the element and the amount. She was sure of it. She looked up at the faces of the Daofei. Lao Gu had a cool, knowing expression, but the rest were shocked into submission. They'd been smuggling valuable cargo the whole time. They settled down in one of the innumerable abandoned quarries that supplied the middle and upper rings of Ba Sing Se. The marker of wealth for most Earth Kingdom citizens was whether your house was built with stone from the ground below it. The farther the rock had to travel, the fancier it was. This quarry followed a seam of marble. The small canyon had been mined out in perfectly square blocks, leaving the edges protruding with right angles. They landed on a flat surface of swirled gray and white, resembling tiny figures on a giant fountain basin. The regularity of the stone fractures laid on top of the natural rock formations made Kiyoshi's vision blur. The first sign that something was off was Wong. He dismounted first and then reached up to help Kiyoshi down. She frowned, assuming he was more likely to pick her pocket than act as a footman. She jumped off the other side of the saddle. Once they were all on solid ground, 
the original members of the Flying Opera Company backed away from her. We need a moment to confer, Karima said. Kiyoshi and Rongi shared uncertain glances with each other while the Daofei huddled on the far side of the marble cube, murmuring and whispering. Occasionally, one of them would poke their head up like a singing groundhog and give Kiyoshi a hard, assessing stare before returning to their debate. If they turn on us, Rongi whispered sideways through a forced smile, I want you to take Pung Pung and run. I'll buy you time to escape. Kiyoshi found that scenario too distressing to think about. The sudden end of the gang's discussion forced her backbone straighter. They filed back over to Kiyoshi and Rongi, as grim and wary and determined as the first night they'd met. Kiyoshi sucked in her breath through her teeth as Lek stepped forward, a mirror of that night they'd almost come to blows. It's been our honor to have traveled with the Avatar, he said. We regret that we have to part ways. They bowed in unison. Not using the Daofei salute, but with their hands formally at their sides. Kiyoshi blinked. Huh? It doesn't have to be right now, if that's not to your wishes, Karima said. I suppose you might want the night to plan your next move and leave us in the morning. It was the politeness more than anything that threw her off. Huh? They seemed as confused as she was. You're the Avatar. Wong said, you can't stay with people like us. It'd be an offense to the spirits or something. Not to mention too dangerous, Lex said. He ran his fingers over his palm where a blotchy red line remained, the artifact of Karima's imperfect healing. We're still obligated to join the attack on Governor Taze. If we bail, Mock will find us eventually. When he does... Well, being killed by a Shursu would be kinder. You'll be safer the farther away you are from us, Karima said. Kiyoshi's mind reeled. Were they protecting her? She'd been so certain that the first people who discovered her identity would take her hostage or rat her out to Jinju. The Avatar was a tool. The Avatar was leverage. The master of all four elements lay somewhere between a bargaining chip to get what you wanted and a blunt force hammer to be swung at at the many imperfections riddling the world. No, you just thought that way because of how Genju treated Yun. Kyoshi, they have a point, Rangi said. If you fall deeper into Mok's clutches, it will taint you forever. That was true. If she cared at all about being the Avatar, about someday holding the office and performing its duties as Yoon had already begun to do, then she had to part ways with the Flying Opera Company and their debts. Otherwise, the association with criminals would mark her indelibly. She'd be unclean. The history of the avatars contained rebels, enemies of tyrants, those who stood alone against the armies of the four nations when necessary. 
But as far as Kiyoshi knew, none had been self-serving outlaws. Time had always proven her predecessors in the right and shown them as champions of justice. Yoon had told her that most Daofei respected the Avatar. She looked at her parents' gang and saw their swagger gone, their cloak of daring and confidence torn wide open. They'd laid themselves bare in the presence of the living bridge between mankind and spirits. She couldn't explain what was so familiar about this situation, nor why she felt so compelled. The Flying Opera Company was not a bunch of innocent victims, like the hostages kidnapped by Tagaka, needing a higher power to reach down and change their futures. They should have been capable enough without her, just like... Yoon. They reminded her of Yoon, when he needed Kiyoshi beside him on the iceberg. They were her friends, and they were in a bind. Kiyoshi didn't turn her back on her friends. She swallowed her own misgivings and made up her mind. I'm not going anywhere, she said. I'm staying, and if I can help with the autumn bloom, I will. I haven't gotten my end of the bargain yet. The gang perked up. Logically, her promise should have made no difference to them. She'd been deadweight since the beginning, only useful because of Peng Peng. But they glanced at her with wonder in their shifting eyes, the same nervousness she knew she felt when Kelsong had tracked her down for the first time and lifted her out of the dirt. You'd sully yourself with me? Kyoshi. Rangi said. Think about this to its end. The Avatar can't be seen attacking the residents of an Earth Kingdom official. As far as the Abiders are concerned, I'm not the Avatar yet, Kiyoshi said. I took the oaths of this group. I won't abandon my sworn brothers and sisters. Her choice of words was not lost on them. Or Rangi. The firebender was torn between being critical of Kyoshi's judgment and being proud that she'd brought personal honor into the issue. You are not ready for anything resembling a real fight, Rangi said. Currently, you are this group's biggest weakness. You're too valuable to lose, and you don't have the skills to defend yourself. That's a little harsh, Lex said, of all people. Hairpin's right, Karima said to Kiyoshi. Currently, we have until the next full moon to link up with Mok's forces for the assault. We can finally give you the training you were hoping for. That's what we promised you, wasn't it? It takes years for the Avatar to master all four elements, Rangi snapped. And that's with world-class teachers. I don't get the impression that any of you have a bending lineage to speak of. Karima grinned. No, but I've always wanted to start one. I'm not going to pass up the chance to go down in history as the Avatar's waterbending master. Kiyoshi could practically hear Rangi's blood boil. Through her mother's side, her family belonged to an unbroken line of bending teachers who were considered some of the finest in the Fire Nation. 
they'd tutored members of the royal family. This plan required her to accept the shame they'd put off for so long. The most important bender in the world would have to bow to rabble. The Daofei watched the agony play out on Rongi's face. They were highly amused. Lighten up, Lex said. We'd be teaching Kyoshi to survive, not turning her into Yang Chen. Consider the raid on Tae's a practical exam. Whatever worshipfulness Kyoshi detected earlier had completely vanished from their attitude. Kyoshi supposed she only had herself to blame, telling them to think of her as their sister instead of the Avatar. Speaking of Yang Chen, we're out of luck for airbending anyway, Karima added. Either the two of you accept a few improvisations, or Kyoshi remains the way she is. Weak, defenseless, a helpless, pitiable babe in the woods who can't... Kiyoshi aimed beyond Karima's shoulder and pulled a massive cube of stone out of the far side of the canyon. It went crashing down the cliff face, its corner shearing off, a die cast by a spirit the size of a city. The boulder hit the canyon floor and fractured into an army of slabs and shards that teetered on their ends before falling over flat. Despite the noise, Karima didn't give the landslide a single glance. She stared at Kiyoshi, impassive, unimpressed. This is exactly what I'm talking about, she said. You need more than one trick in your bag. Kiyoshi felt the evening wash by her, like the wind passing through the branches of a tree. The gang was content to leave her be, for now. They chattered excitedly to themselves around the fire. The Avatar had volunteered to stay by their side. Their every move forward carried a tinge of spiritual righteousness. Kiyoshi gave it a day before the shine wore off. Rangi was in a mood all her own. After camp chores were finished, she hopped to a different stone cutout entirely to meditate. By herself, it was made pretty clear. They'd talked about the anguish of watching each other take risks, but neither of them had made any promises to stop. They couldn't. Not now. Kiyoshi watched the stars fade in and out of the sky, screened and unveiled in turn by the clouds that were as invisible in the darkness as black-clad stagehands moving the settings of a play. She was waiting for the others to fall asleep. She waited for a particular hour that belonged neither to this day nor the next, when time felt jellied and thick. Kiyoshi got up and moved to the next cubicle platform of the quarry, and then the next. Without dust stepping, it was slow going. She had to clamber up and down the height changes, she didn't want to wake the others with noisy, orthodox earthbending. The old man stood at the mouth of the marble seam with his back turned to her. Sometimes she wondered if Lao Go wasn't a shared hallucination, or an imaginary friend exclusive to her. 
The others could have been humoring her, nodding and smiling every time she talked to a patch of empty space. I thought you would come to me in Hujiang, he said. I suppose you had other priorities on your mind. Kiyoshi bowed, knowing he could tell if she did. Apologies, Sifu. But in her thoughts, the unease ballooned. If he had a problem with Rangi, then... Lao Gu turned around. There was a smile in his eyes. You don't have to forsake love, he said. Killing's not some holy art form that requires worldly abstinence. If anything, that's lesson two. She swallowed around the block in her throat. She'd been full of bluster the first night she went to him in secret. But she'd been so used to false starts and stymied progress that continuing their conversation felt like foreign territory. More doubt seeped into her cracks. Lesson two should scare you to the bone, Lao Gu said. You can take a life before the sun comes up, eat breakfast, and go about your day. How many people might you pass on the street who are capable of such callousness? Many more than you think. Genju certainly was. He'd pulled her alone to safety, leaving Yun behind in the clutches of that unholy spirit. That was the moment he'd marked his once prized pupil as having no further use. The way a dock worker might paint an X on a crate of cargo fouled by seawater. Total loss, not worth the recovery effort. And then, there was what he'd done to Kelsong. Fancy yourself different? Lao Gu said, noticing her stillness. She could still feel Genju's hands gripping her. I won't know until I try, she said. The old man laughed, a single bark that pierced the night. I suppose you'll get the chance soon. In the heat of battle, you can excuse the act away well enough. Fling an arrow here, hack away with a sword there. You and your victim are just two of many, acting in self-preservation. Is that how you want to deal with your man? With chaos as your shroud? Do you want to shut your eyes, hurl an overwhelming amount of death in his direction, and hope he's disposed of when you open them? No, she said. Remembering what she'd been robbed of, what she'd never get back because of Genju, brought a surge of conviction. I want to look him in the eye as I end him. Lao Gu reacted as if she'd made a saucy quip, pursing his lips in amusement. Well then, he said. In that case, during the raid, you and I are going to split off from the others. We'll head farther into the palace than anyone else, and we're going to assassinate Governor Tay. Wait, what? 
The certainty she had regarding Genju caused her to mentally stumble at the mention of another target. It was as if she were the Leitai fighter, throwing an all-or-nothing punch at Rongi, who deftly turned her momentum against her. Why would we do that? For you, it's practice, Lao Ge said. For me, it's because he's my man. Listen, Governor Tay is brutally incompetent and corrupt. His people go hungry. He skims from the Earth King's taxes to enrich his own coffers. And in case you haven't noticed, he doesn't have a good policy for handling Dao Fei. Those aren't excuses to murder him. You're right. They're not excuses. They're ample justifications. I guarantee you that many citizens have suffered immeasurably from his greed and negligence, and many more will die if he's allowed to keep breathing. Lao Ge spread his hands wide, as if to embrace the world. Tay and his ilk are parasites, leeching strength and vitality from the kingdom. Imagine yourself as the predator that keeps the land healthy by eliminating the sources of its weakness. It was said of Kuruk that he was the greatest hunter that ever walked the Four Nations. But from what I know, he never made man his quarry. I'm hoping you can be different. The idea of becoming a beast free of thought and culpability was supposed to help, but it made her shudder instead. What gives you the right to decide, she asked. Are you part of another brotherhood? Are there more people like you? Is someone paying you? He shook his head, dodging her questions. Doesn't everyone have the right to decide, he said. Isn't the Avatar a person like me? Someone who shapes the world with their choices? She was going to protest that no, the Avatar had the recognition of the spirits in four nations. But she found her tongue-tied in the wake of his argument. He gripped his forearms behind his back and gazed across the canyon. I would declare... The lowliest peasant is like the avatar in this regard. All of our actions have an impact. Each decision we make ripples into the future, and we alter our landscapes according to our needs. To keep her crops alive, a farmer uproots the weeds that nature has placed in her fields. Does she not? People aren't weeds, Kiyoshi said. It was the best she could manage. He turned to face her. I think it's a bit late to claim the moral high ground, given what your aims are. She flushed hot in her cheeks. Genju murdered two of my friends with his own hands, she spat. He doesn't deserve to get away with it. If you took him out for me, Instead of targeting some random governor, I could reveal myself as the Avatar. I would be safe. Her resolve was wavering left and right. 
Not a minute ago, she was yowling about doing the deed herself, feigning a hard soul. And now, she was begging Grandfather to make the bad man go away. Lauka smirked. No one in this world is random. I don't care to kill Jinju. He's competent, and he surrounds himself with competent people. I wish the Earth Kingdom had a hundred Jinjus. We'd enter a new golden age. And yet you're not trying to stop me from ending him. For this case, I won't intervene one way or the other. Besides, what kind of teacher would I be if I took my student's examination for her? A rich one, Kiyoshi muttered. Tutors swapping identities with the children of wealthy families so they could pass the government tests needed for prestigious administrative jobs was a common practice across the Earth Kingdom. Pulling off the con paid very well. Lao Ge burst out laughing. <laughs> I do like our little chats. Here's an assignment for you in the meantime. He jumped up to a higher level without the aid of bending and without much effort at all. The leap was higher than Kiyoshi's head. Many of Governor Tei's personal guard will die in Mock's raid, he said, disappearing past the edge of the stone, his voice already beginning to fade. Soldiers who are simply doing their jobs. His servants will be caught in the violence as well. What will you do then, Avatar? Kyoshi hopped in place, her eye poking above the surface of the cube he'd landed on, trying to catch one last glimpse. It was empty. Lao Ge was already gone. She slumped against the marble wall. The concept of collateral damage had lingered in the back of her mind, but Lao Ge had circled it in ink, made it ache. The same way Rongi pointed out flaws in her horse stance. She had no idea how she was going to take part in this action, fulfill her promise to her newfound brotherhood, without getting her hands dirty. The promise had been so easy to make at the time. She stared miserably at the opposite side of the mind-out gulf, sleep coming to her before a solution could. She woke up, sprawled flat on the hard marble surface. She must have shifted during the night. Four figures loomed over her, making an arc of their upside-down faces. Oh, look, Karima said. Our precious little student is trying to get away and shirk her training. Wong stomped the ground. The marble under Kyoshi tilted like a frying pan, dumping her to her feet. He proffered her fans, handles toward her. I get you first, he rumbled. A warm-up before you start bending. Topknot told us all about your little weakness, Lex said, backing away with a look of superiority on his face. That you can't bend small pieces of earth? I believe my words were completely and utterly lax precision, Rongi said, sniffing in contempt. She ignored Kyoshi's glare. Don't worry. Lex said, by the time we're done with you, you'll be able to bend the crud out of your own eye. Catch. 
He whipped the stone that appeared in his hand at Kyoshi's face. Only the fact that Wong had her fans held out right there let her snatch one in time to protect herself. As the arms snapped open and she earth-bent through the weapon, the stone stopped in midair. It reversed course at full speed and struck Lek in the forehead. He doubled over. Ow, he screamed. I was aiming above you. Wait, so you can bend small things? Karima said, upset by the revelation. Were you lying to us again? I have to tell you, I'm getting really fed up with the secrets. I'm bleeding here. This is worse than Hu Jiang. That's not how you open the fan, Wong roared indignantly. You could have damaged the leaf. Amid the shouting, Rangi buried her face in her hands. She seemed to have a headache that rivaled Lex. Kyoshi agreed with her. The official training of the Avatar was off to a great start. Preparations The journey to Tay's palace was a painful blur. Each moment spent on solid ground was devoted to training. The Daofei adopted their new roles as her teachers with relish. Criminals liked their hierarchies, and the Flying Opera Company had just established a brand new one, with Kiyoshi at the bottom. No, Wong shouted. It's fan open, fan closed, high block, dainty steps backward, big lunge forward, leg sweep. The fan is not a weapon, it's an extension of your arm. The man had never been much for words before, but when it came to fighting with the fan, he transformed into a tyrannical stage director, with the ego and perfectionism to match. I could remember the moves better if you didn't make me sing the full works of Yuan Zhen while we do this, Kyoshi said, huffing and puffing in the open field they'd landed in. The rest of the group sat in the shade of a persimmon tree overlooking an empty field, munching on the astringent fruit and enjoying the breeze while Kiyoshi toiled under the sun. Wong was highly offended. The singing is breath control practice. Power and voice both come from the center. Again, with emotional content this time. No matter how difficult fan practice got, she toughed it out. The rewards were bounding leaps in progress with her earthbending. With her fans in hand, she could narrow her focus to kick rocks at targets and raise walls of stone like a normal earthbender, albeit one with a sloppy informal technique. Still, after all those years of fearing she'd destroy the countryside with the smallest act of bending, using her mother's weapons was liberating. It was so effective, it felt like cheating. It is cheating, Lex said as they volleyed pebbles back and forth at each other in the mouth of a cave while the others set up camp. Sure, some earthbenders amplify their power with weapons like hammers and maces, but what are you going to do if you don't have your fans? Ask for a rules change? How is someone going to steal my fans? Kyoshi said. The flight of the pebbles picked up speed, their arcs growing sharper. I always have them with me. It might not be theft, Lex said. You might voluntarily leave them behind. The first rule of smuggling is don't get caught with the goods.
Your parents knew that. That's probably why they stashed the fans with you in that hick abider town. Kyoshi's temper flared. One, she found herself longing for Yokoya these days, much to her surprise. Not the people, but the harsh, wild landscape where the wooded mountains met the sea and salt air. The interior Earth Kingdom often felt like a brown monotone, a flat expanse that changed little from one landing site to the next. She decided she didn't appreciate people looking down on the unique little part of it where she'd met Kelsong. And two, she'd never gotten over the resentment she felt toward Lek, each moment her parents had spent with him instead of her. It didn't matter if he was simply a gang member to them. They'd found him useful, decided he had a purpose. Her? Not so much. She could have explained her feelings to him. Instead, she sliced at the flying pebbles with her fans, cracking them cleanly into hemispheres, and sent twice as many projectiles back at Lack. Can you do that, with or without a weapon? He yelped and threw himself to the floor. The shot blast of stone zinged into the cave wall above him, showering him in dust. Playtime had gotten far too rough. I'm sorry, Kyoshi cried out, covering her mouth in horror with the spread fan. She could have put out his eye, or worse. He got up with a scowl on his face, but then he remembered something. His glower turned into a grin so smug, it could have illuminated the rest of the cave. It's fine, he said, patting the dirt off his pants. Though I'll have to tell Rangi about your lapse in control. Whatever remorse Kyoshi felt vanished. You snot-nosed little. He raised a finger patiently, like an enlightened guru. Bop, bop. That's Sifu's not nose to you. Kiyoshi could firebend without her fans. That one bad attempt after their escape from Chameleon Bay was a distant memory. Since then, some kind of blockage had cleared. The flame felt straightforward, a power that merely needed to be set free instead of prodded or manipulated like Earth. It made no sense to her how she had a critical weakness with her native element, but could produce fire decently for a beginner. The reason could have been that Rangi was a great teacher, as might be expected from the scion of great teachers. No, Rangi said. It's your emotional state. The little training area they'd built stood at the end of an isolated shepherd's path, leading away from a small town in a valley below. Rungi faced her on a long, narrow beam of earth that she'd ordered Kyoshi to raise from the ground. Balancing on it was hard enough, but then they'd started to run through firebending forms and light sparring. The linear exercise meant she'd need to concentrate on resisting and overcoming with positive jing, instead of staying still or evading. Of all bending disciplines... Fire is the most affected by inner turmoil, Rangi said, punching a flame downward at Kyoshi's front foot, forcing her to pull it back. The fact that it's coming easier to you now means you're feeling more relaxed and natural. Kyoshi snap kicked her new leading leg. 
a crescent of fire sliced upward, and Rongi had to reconsider how much pressure she wanted to apply. Isn't that a good thing? Kiyoshi asked. No, why would it be? You feel loose and breezy when you're surrounded by Daofei, about to risk your life for them in what's essentially an act of treason against the Earth Kingdom. Rangi spun on the balls of her feet, perfectly centered, with more dance-like beauty than Kiyoshi could ever have mustered. A horizontal skirt of flame billowed out from her waist, exactly at a height too awkward for Kiyoshi to jump over or duck easily. Rangi hadn't accounted for her opponent's complete lack of shame. Kiyoshi dropped to her belly like a worm, hugging the sides of the beam for stability, and let the wave of fire pass over her. She popped back up to see Rangi looking at her with disapproval in her eyes. And it was about more than her lowly escape. You're firebending now, Rangi said. Dare I say, you might even be good at it. There's no reason to continue on this path. We could go to the sages and prove you're the avatar. Kiyoshi thought this matter had been settled, but apparently not. Which ones exactly, she said, because the only sages I know are the names from Jenju's guest lists. Should we try Lu Beifong, the man who thinks of Jenju like his own son? Or maybe someone at the court of Omashu? Omashu is practically his summer home. We could go to my mother, Rangi said, her voice barely audible. Kiyoshi dropped her fighting stance. If she caught a fireball to the face, she deserved it. She'd essentially separated Rangi from her only family. It was a nagging guilt that Kiyoshi had been able to ignore solely because of her friend's strength. This was the first time Rangi had cracked along that plane. Do you really think she'd take our side over this? Kiyoshi asked. She didn't mean for the question to be defiant. The friendship between the Avatar's companions in Era's past was the stuff of legend. It was said that two of Yang Chen's close friends and bending teachers had died protecting her from her enemies. The prospect of Haydon choosing Jenju over her own daughter had to be considered. Rongi's face wilted further. I don't know, she said after a while. Her shoulders were heavy with dejection. I couldn't be certain. I guess if we can't trust my own mother, then we can't trust anyone. It did not feel good to win this argument. Kiyoshi stepped along the beam carefully until she could put her arms around Rongi. I'm sorry, she said. I've taken so much from you. I don't know how to make it right. Rongi wiped her nose and pushed Kiyoshi away. You can start by promising me you'll be a great avatar, a leader who's virtuous and just. The comment knocked Kiyoshi off balance better than a kick to her knee. She couldn't reconcile her friend's righteous desires with the dark conclusions of Lao Ge. Entertaining the wisdom of an assassin was already a betrayal of Rongi's trust. What would happen if Kiyoshi took the old man's test and passed? 
Rongi lined up a big attack to knock her off the beam, purposely exaggerating her own motions and openings to let her student counter-hit her. But Kyoshi couldn't capitalize on them. She backed away until she ran out of space, forlornly waving her hands in a mockery of fire bending, heat sputtering from her fingers. Luck intervened before she humiliated herself further. You two have been here all morning, Karima called out as she approached along the trail. It's my turn with Kiyoshi. Buzz off, Rongi yelled. She took the fire she'd been winding between her hands and redirected it high above Karima's head. Since the night they spent in the marble quarry, Rongi's personal attitude toward Karima had gone steeply downhill. Kiyoshi had no idea why. They were both talented benders who married intelligence with precision. She'd trust either of their judgments in a pinch. Karima didn't flinch from the fire blast. The waves of heat fluttered her hair and illuminated her sharp face in golden hues, an effect that was rather pretty. You're not setting a very good example for the baby avatar, Top Knot. Too much rage will stunt her growth. Stop calling me that. Rongi fumed. Maybe that was it, the constant teasing. Kyoshi wondered how Rongi put up with the nickname for so long. In the Fire Nation, hair was heavily linked with honor. She'd heard that sometimes the losers of an important Agni Kai would shave parts of their head bald, laying patches of their scalp bare to symbolize an extra level of humility from their defeat. But the top knot was always sacred. It was never touched, except in circumstances akin to death. Karima bowed in mockery. As you wish, my good hot woman. I'm coming back in five minutes. After she disappeared, Kiyoshi put her hand on Rongi's shoulder. Did something happen between the two of you? Rongi responded with her new favorite way of avoiding the subject. Stance training, she said. We already did stance training. Lex said you went berserk in the cave. We're moving to two a day. Horse, now. Kiyoshi groaned and pressed her feet together. She shuffled them to the sides, alternating between heels and toes, until they were wider than her shoulders. She kept quiet as she lowered her waist, or else Rongi would make her hold a log or some other heavy object they could find lying around. Rongi circled her, looking for any weakness where she could strike. Do not move, she said, right before stepping carefully onto Kyoshi's bent knee. I hate you so much, Kyoshi yelled as Rongi draped her body weight over her shoulders. The exercise is to maintain composure in the face of distraction. Now maintain. Kyoshi put up with the asymmetrical agony until Rongi dropped back down to the ground. I don't want her teaching you water bending, Rongi said as she moved threateningly into Kyoshi's blind spot. Why? Kyoshi felt Rongi leap onto her back, clinging to her like a rucksack. Ah, why? There's a proper order to training the avatar, Rongi said. The cycle of the seasons. Earth, fire, air, water. 
It's not good to deviate from that pattern. You have to master the other elements before water. Again, why? There were only four airbending temples in the world. If she tried to seek out a master there, Genji would find her more easily than anywhere else. Because, Rangi snapped, they say bad things happen when an avatar tries to defy the natural order of bending. Ill fortune befalls them. Kiyoshi had never known Rongi to lean on superstition. Tradition, however, was another matter. She could tell that each time they ignored an established practice regarding the avatar, the knife twisted in Rongi's heart a little bit more. But Kiyoshi owed it to her not to make a promise she couldn't keep. I'm going to use every weapon I have at my disposal, she said. That was the truth. Rongi let go of her. I know. I can't stop you from training with Karima. It's just that as soon as you start waterbending in earnest, our chance to do things the right way dies. Forever. It can't be brought back. Hearing it phrased that way made Kiyoshi glummer than she'd expected. She stared at the ground in front of her. Rangi's feet came into view. Come on, she said. Cheer up. I didn't mean to send you into a spiral. I can't cheer up. I'm in horse stance. I like your focus, Rangi said. But see if you can withstand this. She slid between Kyoshi's arms and gave her a head-tilting, knee-buckling kiss, as powerful and deep as the ocean after a storm. Kiyoshi's eyes went wide before they shut forever. She sank into heavenly darkness, her backbone turned to liquid. Maintain, Rangi murmured, her lips like a feather on Kiyoshi's, before she attacked again with added ferocity this time. Kiyoshi never wanted the torment to end. Rangi pressed into her like metal glowing on an anvil, scorching her where their skin met. Fingers ran through Kyoshi's hair, twisting and pulling to remind her how delightfully at the firebender's mercy she was. After a hundred years had passed, Rangi broke contact, gently and deliberately breathing a wisp of steam down Kyoshi's neck, a parting gift of heat that drifted underneath her clothes. She leaned in for one last seductive whisper. You still have seven minutes left to go, Rangi said. Kiyoshi kept her complaints to herself. It was a decent trade, all things considered. Your water and air chakras are overflowing, Lauko said. He sounded like it was an embarrassment, as if Kiyoshi had wandered outside her home without being fully dressed. She'd braved coming to him while the others were still awake, bedded down by the embers of the campfire. Rangi was probably staring at the sky, vigilant to her last moments of consciousness. Lao Gu lay on his side in the grass, his head propped upon his hand so he could watch a pair of fireflies circle each other, tracing erratic patterns through the air.
Kiyoshi had long since gathered that the man had very little need to ever look at her. I don't know what chakras are, she said. What they are is either open or closed. For the sake of predictability, I prefer working with people who have all seven of them open, or all seven of them closed. An accomplice with only some of their chakras unblocked can be easily swayed by their strongest, most gnarled-up emotion. Kiyoshi assumed the term had something to do with energy movement within the body. Not much of a stretch, since controlling internal chi was the basis of all bending. Your feelings of pleasure and love are butting up against a wall of grief, he said, and guilt. Grief I can work with, but guilt makes for a poor killer. Have you second thoughts about your man? No, she said. Never. Lao Go rolled over to his other side. She waited, letting him examine her to see she wasn't bluffing. Genju was part of her blood by now. He was the back of her hands. But this Tay person was not. I don't know if I can help you kill the governor, she said. Helping mock free a prisoner is one thing, but an assassination in cold blood is another. Kyoshi wondered why she didn't reject Lao Gu immediately the other night. Speaking the action out loud made it ludicrous. There's no reason for me to help you. The old man blew his nose on his sleeve. Have you ever heard of Guru Shokin? He asked. Kiyoshi shook her head. He was an ancient philosopher, a contemporary of Lahima's. Not as popular, though. He had a proverb. If you meet the spirit of enlightenment on the road, slay it. She wrinkled her brow. I can see why he's not popular. Yes, he was considered heretical by some but wise by others. One interpretation of that particular saying is that you keep bound by petty concerns on your personal journey. You must walk with a singular purpose. The judgment of others, no matter how horrific or criminal they label your actions, must hold no meaning to you. I can't do that, Kiyoshi said. I care what she thinks of me. I don't know if I could handle disappointing her. Lao Gu knew whom Kyoshi was talking about. Your hesitation seems to be less about your own morals than hers. In fact, without your firebender tethering you to this world, you might feel no compunction at all. Perhaps that's why you feel guilt. You're only one step away from Guru Shokin's ideal, and it disturbs you. This was the sorry state of Kyoshi's avatarhood. Heartlessness, the new enlightenment. Murder, the means to self-discovery. If she ever resurfaced in the legitimate world, 
She would create a stain as dark as loam in the history books. Don't look so compromised, Lao Gu said. Yang Chen was a devoted reader of Shokan. Kiyoshi glanced up at him. She studied his opponents as well, he said. But I don't feel like giving you their philosophical arguments. It doesn't serve my purposes. She remembered the notes in her mother's journal about the rumored longevity of Kieguai the immortal. Are you him? She said. Are you Shokin? If her wild accusation was right, it would have made the man before her older than the four nations themselves. Lao Gu snorted and rolled on his back, closing his eyes. <laughs> of course not, he settled into sleep. I was always much better looking than that fool. Conclusions Jenju had learned his lesson. No caravans, no roads. As soon as he received the message from the Shirshu tracker team delivered by Hawk, he'd gone through the enormous, preposterous expense of buying rare eel hounds. The fastest cross-country mounts besides a flying bison. A whole herd of them. In the annals of the Earth Kingdom, ancient nomadic barbarians had traveled great distances, surprising foot-slugging armies with such tactics. A single rider would bring multiple mounts on a journey, switching between them on the fly to keep the animals as fresh and speedy as possible. From the ranks of his newly replenished guardsmen, he'd chosen two on the basis of their riding ability, and set out with eight eelhounds between them. They'd been told as little as possible, but from his urgency, it was easy to guess that their quest was important. They reached the mountains of Bossing, say, an astonishing time, with barely a witness to mark their passing. Early on, one mount had broken its leg in a singing groundhog's hole and needed to be put down. Another died from exhaustion on the far shore of West Lake. But other than that, the constant mindless riding, the wind in his hair, had been good for Jenju's spirit. As much as he missed Heiran's company, he needed the occasional freedom from her watchful gaze. The party had brought more messenger hawks with their baggage, carefully caged and hooded. Jenju had promised to send word to her as soon as possible. The location where he was set to meet the trackers was a small trailhead leading into the foothills of the southern Taihua Range. The gentle slope of grassy green knolls was punctured by rows of red stone crags jutting upward, uniformly following the same angle and grain. The rocks were as tall and numerous as the trees in a forest. Jenju saw a lone figure in the middle of the stones, waving them over, and frowned. The message that had brought him here in such a hurry had explained, with overflowing apologies, that the Shirshu had followed the scent trail to these mountains, right before they'd lost control of the animal. It had escaped and run up the peaks in pursuit of its prey. For all he knew, it might have eaten the Avatar. The handlers must have drawn lots to see which one would face his wrath in person, while the rest looked for the Shirshu.
He spurred his hound toward the unlucky representative. The man's waving was stiff and forced, like the motion of a water wheel. You can stop, Genju called out. I see you. A whistle, and then a thump. The lone tracker keeled over, two arrows in his back. Genju cursed and leaped off his mount, more arrows crossing the air above his saddle. He tented slabs of earth around him and hunkered down in his cover, listening to the thunks of projectiles landing around him. I am getting much too old for this. He never would have fallen for such an obvious trap in his younger days. There was a pause in the firing. He chambered his fists and punched outward. The slabs that had protected him now splintered and flew outward in all directions like shrapnel from a bombard. He heard screams from the rocks above. Taking in his surroundings as quickly as possible, he saw a few archers who'd fallen from their perches lying at the base of the crags. But better safe than sorry. He lowered his stance, shook his waist, and whirled his arms. From base to top, every stone he could see violently sprouted thin spikes the size of gins, like they'd instantly transformed into the same species of Siwong cactus. He heard more screams from the archers who remained hidden in their cover behind the rocks. That should have been it for elevated opponents. Fighters who fancied themselves professionals but weren't often made the mistake of taking the high ground without planning a way out. His eelhound had run off, but two of them were still nearby, tethered by their reins to a heavy weight. The corpse of one of the guardsmen studded with arrows. The reins had snagged on his wrist. Good job, whatever your name was, Genju thought. The other guardsman was busy wiping the blood off his dao with a hank of grass. Three attackers lay at his feet. They'd charged him with melee weapons, and bizarre ones at that. Genju thought he spotted an abacus made of iron on the ground. He was still impressed. What do they call you, son? The guardsman snapped to attention and stared above Genju's head with youthful, bright eyes. He had the strong brow of Eastern Peninsula ancestry. Sifle, sir. It was likely Sifle didn't understand how close of a call this was. Talent would only let you survive so many encounters. After that, the odds tended to catch up with a vengeance. Excellent work, Sifle. There's always opportunity for a quick blade on my staff. I'll remember this. The young guardsman kept his thrill contained as best he could. Thank you, sir. Genju nudged a body onto its back. The dead man was clothed in the standard attire of a bandit, in the sense that he wore whatever peasant clothing he'd taken with him from his last legitimate occupation. This one had the trousers of a sailor or a sailmaker, mended repeatedly with fine sewing skill. But there was an odd detail on his shirt. He'd stuck a flower in his lapel. It was too ruined to see what kind. Genju checked another body. It had no decoration on its person, but he backtracked along the path the man had charged and found what he was looking for on the ground. A dried moon peach blossom. A badge. 
Genju thought with some vehemence. He straightened up and looked around. The mountains loomed nearby. They were said to be uninhabited, practically impassable. Yet these men weren't clothed for an expedition. With a sudden burst of energy, he slammed his palm against the ground. Tremors rang through the earth, spreading wide like ripples in a pond. Sir, are you searching for something underground? Sifel asked. Maybe, Genju said, his attention skimming over the grass. Though what I'm doing right now is preserving their footprints. He continued along the trail left by Sifel's opponents, watching the indentations they made with their heels and toes in the dirt, examining where they left mud on grass. A long time ago, he'd tracked criminals down in such a way by listening to the earth and reading its marks. The prince, in reverse, led to a clearing with a conspicuous gray rock the size of a chair. Genju waved it away with a brush of his hand. Underneath was a wooden trap door. A hidden passage? Sifo asked. Genju nodded grimly. Hidden passage through the mountains. Sir, is this town supposed to be here? Sifo said. No, Genju said, his teeth grinding together. Though he couldn't see underground, knowing the tunnel was there allowed Genju to make various educated guesses with earthbending and knowledge of stonework to determine a path. They'd followed the network up the mountain on their eel hounds, forcing aside blocked passages and relying on the agility of their unusual mounts to see them through. Eventually, the obstacles parted to reveal a great crater nestled in the heights, and in that bowl waiting for them was a village that neither of them had ever heard of before. An entire settlement not on any map, out of reach of the law. Genju's rage was almost too great for him to swallow. He was a storekeeper who would never be rid of vermin, a servant who would never be able to polish the silver clean. The town appeared to be abandoned. They rode through empty streets between longhouses that made a mockery of the four nations with adornments either looted or crudely imitated from their places of origin. One particular scrap quilted banner had been fastened together so that characters from multiple signs clumsily formed the syllables Hu and Jiang. Hu Jiang. So that was the name of this dung heap. There's our shirshu, sir, Sifel said. He pointed down the street where a dark, foul-smelling mound blocked the way. The beast lay in relatively dignified repose. Other than the flies buzzing around its face, or lack thereof, it was still whole. Any trophy hunters would have found very quickly that toxins still coursed through its dead body. Professor Shaw would be upset, though. Genji would need to come up with a cover story and a convincing amount of hush money to keep the man's anger from casting suspicion. A brief scraping noise came from the house to his right. There was someone inside. 
Jenju dismounted and approached the darkened building. Sir? Sifel whispered. Going alone is a bad idea. Jenju waved him off. Patrol the street. He slipped inside, contouring against the doorframe rather than standing fully in the entrance, where he would be outlined by sunlight. Judging from the long tables and low backless stools, the building was some kind of inn or tavern. It made him furious again that these outlaws had enjoyed enough peace in these mountains to build gathering places and sell each other wine. Jenju walked around the tavern's counter. He'd found the person who'd made the noise. It was a man sitting on a pile of pillows. He was muscled and scarred like a fighter, though it would seem he'd fared poorly in his last outing. One of his legs was wrapped in cloth and splinted up to his hip. The injured man stared at Jenju with the empty, wary expression of being caught out. Jenju noticed empty bottles within his arm's reach, jars of half-eaten food. He pieced it together. The inhabitants of the settlement had evacuated some days ago, probably scared away by the Shershu. The ambush at the base of the mountain had been a rear guard, or a bunch of greedy opportunists who'd lagged behind. This man with the broken leg couldn't make the journey down at all, so his companions had left him here to recover. Jenju's eyes went to a small, out-of-place vase. It had a moon peach blossom in it. I'm looking for a girl, he said to his recuperating friend. She was here at some point. A very tall girl, taller than you or me. Pretty face, freckles, doesn't speak much. Have you seen her? The man's eyebrows twitched. It could have been an attempt to conceal the truth, or it could have been his memory sparking but failing to light. She would have been accompanied by a firebender. Another girl, black hair, military bearing. Jenju caught the spear hand strike aimed at his throat and redirected it into the nearby shelf, smashing the uprights. The man could add a broken wrist to his troubles. Jenju watched him seethe with pain. The injured fighter tucked his bad hand under his good arm. I am Four Shadows Guan, he snarled with pride. And I will tell you nothing. I know a man of the law when I see one. Jenju believed him. Once these types told you their professional name, there was no more rational conversation to be had. He would try one more tactic, a play on the Daofei's emotions. He plucked the moon peach blossom from its face and twirled the stem between his thumb and forefinger. Times have changed, he said. In my younger days, I remember tracking this small group around the edges of the desert from watering hole to watering hole. The band of the scorpion, they called themselves. There couldn't have been more than a dozen members. Jenju caught what he was looking for, the man snorting in derision at a brotherhood that small. Which meant his group was much larger. The funny thing was, 
When I caught up with them, I found out why they were moving so slowly. He went on. Two of their members had caught foot rot and couldn't walk. The others fashioned litters and carried them through the desert the whole time. The group would have escaped me if they had left their sick behind, but they chose to stay together. They chose brotherhood. He crushed the flower. That's what followers of the code used to be like. When I look at you, abandoned by your sworn brothers, I don't see that tradition. I don't see honor. Genju let a flying gob of spit hit him in the face. The brothers of the autumn bloom are willing to die for each other, the man said, wiping his lips. You would never understand. Our cause makes us... He paused, realizing that Genju was manipulating him. For Shadows Guan was smarter than he looked. He clenched his jaw and slammed back against his makeshift bedrest. Genju grimaced and rolled up his sleeves. So much for doing this the easy way. He stepped into the sunlight and wiped his hands on a nearby saddle blanket that had been hung up to dry and forgotten. The autumn bloom, he thought to himself. The autumn bloom. Who in the name of Oma's bastard children were the autumn bloom? Genju really was getting too old. He'd never heard of this gang before. He, the man who'd once single-handedly kept half the continent from falling into lawlessness, had let a new criminal outfit large enough to populate a good-sized village operate within shouting distance of the capital. The Autumn Bloom, whoever they were and whatever their goals, had a level of organization high enough to evacuate the settlement the moment they suspected an intrusion. And more importantly, most importantly, the only thing that was important was that they now held the Avatar in their clutches. The girl had been here at some point, that was certain. She must have planned to hide in the remote mountains and fallen into an ambush, like he nearly did. She'd been captured and taken to this headquarters. Shershu followed living scents, and the animal would not have come here if she were dead. Genju cursed the spirits and mankind alike, cursed the threads of fate that had formed this knot. The Avatar had been kidnapped by Daofei. He threw his head back and stared at the sky for answers. Out of the corner of his eye, he watched a bird fly away, its long tail plumage trailing behind it like a streamer. Some obscure cultures read the future through the patterns of winged creatures. Genju wondered if that would have worked, if birds could have found the girl at birth and saved them this trouble. He heaved a great sigh. Sifel rounded the corner and came back into the street, trotting back over to his boss. Did you find anything inside, sir? Just a corpse. He looked at the young swordsman. Sifel, along with a handful of other men, 
had answered Genju's call for more fighters after the encounter with Tagaka left the ranks of his guard depleted. Perhaps a little too quickly and conveniently, now that he thought about it. Saifo, I didn't tell you to send a message with one of our hogs, Genju said. The young man looked surprised. I was, uh, relaying ahead for supplies, he said. His hand drifted toward his weapon. He was a capable warrior, unafraid to kill for pay. A mercenary who swore loyalty as long as the wages were good. When you got right down to it, there was really no difference between him and Adalfe. But lying was something he needed more practice at. You're from the Eastern Peninsula, aren't you? Genju said. He clasped his hands behind his back. I have a good friend who does a lot of business in the Eastern Peninsula. His name is Hui. Have you met him before, by chance? Perhaps he was the one you relayed for supplies just now. It had only been a twinge of suspicion on Janju's part, a bluff, really. But mentioning Hui's name let loose a flood of tells from Seifel's face and body language. Let me guess, Janju said, digging deeper along this productive seam of ore. Hui sent you to infiltrate my household, didn't he? With orders to find out what happened to the Avatar. The slight step backward Seifel took let Jinju know that he'd struck upon the truth. And being the smart young man you are, you realized the implication of the Shishu trail ending here. The Avatar, and let's be clear, we have been following the Avatar, has been lost to outlaws. That was the message you sent to Hui just now. Seifel was astonished that Genju had performed the supernatural feat of reading his mind. Really, all Genju had done was follow lines of information as they unfolded, like any good pie show player. The swordsman decided to follow a gambit of his own. He'd been found out, but they were in the isolated mountains, and he had his weapon and his youthful reflexes on his side. He warily drew his Tao again. Genju rolled his neck, his joints creakier than in years past. The thing about Paisho was that most games didn't need to be played to completion. Masters usually recognized when they were beaten and resigned while the action was still technically in progress. If this dance between him and Hui had taken place on the grid, then right here would be where Genju was supposed to bow and pick up his tiles in defeat. There was no stopping the message from reaching Hui now that the bird was in the air. The Chamberlain would realize how big a mess he was hiding and assemble a case against him to the rest of the sages of the Earth Kingdom. If the girl was found alive and her identity proven, she'd be delivered straight into the hands of Hui who in the end wouldn't care which version of the Avatar he got, so long as he was taking it from Genju. By all logical reasoning, he was ruined. 
he'd lost. But what only his close Pai Show partners knew about him was that Jin Yu had never surrendered a game early in his life. On the rare occasions when an opponent got the best of him, he forced them to play out the lines to the bitter end. He made them jump hurdles for every piece of his they captured, and ran the late-night candles down to their last inches of wick out of sheer spite. Jenju smiled grimly as he closed in on the young swordsman. Beating him always required a price in blood. He wasn't about to drop the habit now. Questions and Meditations Kyoshi kept pace behind Lao Ge through the streets of the market. The two of them were alone, a girl and her elderly uncle taking a relaxing stroll. Nothing out of the ordinary, except Lao Ge, when not in the presence of the rest of the flying opera company, walked with the bearing of a dragon wrapped in the clothes of a beggar. And Kiyoshi was... Kiyoshi. Vendors in their stalls craned their necks to gawk at her as she passed. Aren't we here to buy rice? She muttered, feeling the pressure of so many gazes. We passed two different peddlers already. Any one of us could have done that alone, Lao Ge said. He winked at a matron sweeping her stoop. She frowned and pushed a pile of dust at him. You're here to observe. Zigan Village was the main town that supplied food and manpower to Governor Tay's palace. Kiyoshi had been impressed by its size as they walked in from the outskirts but quickly noticed that the solidly built houses and traditional Earth Kingdom trappings were somewhat of a front. They hadn't encountered an actual person until they were well into the heart of the village. Kiyoshi found it hard to believe that the outer districts were completely vacant, but she'd seen nothing to the contrary. Her ears perked toward the sound of an argument. A peddler and the farmer supplying him were nearly at blows. You can't fool me shouted the peddler. I know the harvest was good this year. What you're charging me is an outrage. The farmer gestured wildly with the straw hat in his hand. And I'm telling you, most of it gets confiscated for the governor's silos. I have to set the price based on the grain I have left over. How can you keep raising prices when there's an ocean of rice sitting behind his walls? The peddler was beside himself. For Yang Chen's sake, I can see the roof of the storehouse from here. Tay hasn't opened the silos for over five years. You might as well consider that food eaten by the spirits. Lao Ge pushed Kyoshi along. Apparently, they were not here to offer solutions to people who needed them. She knew what he was trying to prove. That Tay's impending death was justified. Reserving food for an emergency isn't foolish or corrupt, she said. No. But secretly selling your reserves for off-the-books profit is. To enrich himself, Tay has traded away the grain he's collected every year since he was appointed governor. He's persisted during bad harvests when his citizens have gone hungry enough to abandon their homes. Most famines are man-made, and he is on the verge of making one. Lao Ge kicked a pebble at a shuttered window. There was no response to the noise. 
Tell me, has Genju ever failed his people in this manner? Kyoshi was forced to admit that Yokoya had only grown and prospered since Genju planted his flag there. The townsfolk she'd seen in Zikan had the sinking, harried look of men and women running out of time. They weren't starving yet, but they would be soon. She recognized the weight of hunger on their shoulders, the same one she felt on hers as she went from door to door in Yokoya, after being dumped there, rejected in turn by every family, her options dwindling. She knew intimately what would happen next to the villagers, how their humanity would break down as starvation and helplessness took over, how it felt to watch death encroach a little closer every week. It had taken an intervention by Kelsong to save her from that fate. Now, Lao Gu was claiming to be that mercy for Zigan, for hundreds of people instead of just one girl. She had no reason to call him wrong. It was a long serpentine hike up the hillside to their encampment. She noticed the flying opera company preferred elevated positions, maybe her mother's influence seeping through. It made perfect sense in this context. The rocky terrain hid them from view, and from this high up, they could see the layout of Tay's palace as clearly as a well-drawn map. The governor is tactically incompetent not to have scouts monitoring these passes, Kiyoshi thought, before noticing the strange mix of Rangi and Lao that had rubbed off on her. Lek looked up from stoking the campfire. Did you get the rice? We got sweet potato. She tossed the burlap sack to the ground. Rice is an issue. I'm sick of sweet potato, he groused. Kiyoshi ignored him and climbed higher to the flat outcropping where Karima and Rangi lay on their stomachs, surveying the palace. They'd come to a temporary truce over their mutual appreciation for intelligence gathering. Casing a joint was pretty much the same thing as planning an assault. She sat down behind them, unnoticed. We're looking at a traditional Suhuyuan design, dating back to the Hao line of Earth Kings, Ronki said to Karima, fixated on the complex below. It was ancient compared to the mansion back in Yokoya. There were four courtyards instead of two. And instead of being walled by rooms in continuous smooth construction, it appeared as if more than a dozen houses of varying sizes and heights had been placed end to end along square patterns drawn in the ground. The ancient owners must have grown in wealth over time, adding more and more extensions haphazardly. A far cry from the singular vision Genju had in constructing his own home. It was still obscenely extravagant, especially when compared to the declining village of Zigan. One of the courtyards held a gaudy turtle duck pond that was too large for its surroundings. Kiyoshi knew that was a new trend in imitation of the Fire Nation Royal Palace. There's overlapping fields of view for the guards in each of the high points, Rangi said. She pointed at three lumps of roof on the closest edge. 
We have to assume they'll be fully manned. So, coming at the best angle, that's three sentries we'll have to deal with on the approach. Lek can drop two of them from a distance, but the third would have time to sound the alarm, Karima said. How do you know so much about old Earth Kingdom architecture? In the Academy, we studied how to attack any kind of fortification, Rongi said. Walled fire temples, Earth Kingdom stockades. Karima looked at her carefully. Polar ice walls? Yes, Rongi said without hesitation. Preparedness carries the day. There was even a plan for Ba Sing Se, though I'd pity the troops who carried it out. The waterbender set aside the comments made toward the other nations. Mock will want to attack the south gate directly, Karima said. If we time our approach with his, we could assume the sentries posted on the other walls will divert toward him. Rongi frowned. That's a killing field. The ground south of the complex was hard-packed dirt strewn with field stones the size of a man's head. A few earthbenders in Tay's guard could cause massive casualties. I don't think Mock cares, Karima said. I don't know what poison Wise been pouring in the ears of his men, but they've turned into fanatics. He's going to breach the walls with sheer numbers. Kiyoshi shuddered to think of the slaughter that would follow if the Daofei succeeded. She'd never heard of a siege where the attackers didn't repay the cost of victory and blood. We have one last option, Karima said. We still don't know which building the prison cells are in, or under. Capturing the entire palace might be the only way we get enough time to search for the person we're trying to free. So instead of trying to penetrate the compound, we simply take out the watchman on the south wall, open the gate from the inside, and let Mock stroll right through. That's not going to happen, Kyoshi said. <sighs> Karima launched herself to her knees and nearly fell off the outcrop. How are you so stealthy on those giant hooves of yours? Servants have to be quiet. Kiyoshi appraised the pair of benders, who were probably more alike than either cared to admit. She needed some wisdom in a hurry. The conventional sort, not the turned-around mind games of Lao Gu. Right now, these two women were her best sources. We have to talk, she said to them. The last hours of daylight were devoted to more training. The training never ended. The training would invade her dreams. She was certain the next fire avatar would be born with her muscle memory imprinted in their little fire baby limbs. Let's go already, Wong shouted. You're the one who wanted to learn dust stepping. Are you sure about this? Kiyoshi said, justifiably nervous. When I saw the rest of you do it, you started on solid ground and worked your way higher. That seems a lot safer. She perched on a rock column, one of many that studded a ravine. The distance between each pillar was at least 12 feet. On the far side of the gully, Wong waited for her. Practice should be more difficult than the real thing, he said. 
The goal is to reach me without slowing down. If you stumble, you have to go back to where you started and try again. You're doing it three times. Kyoshi peered down at the ground below. There was nothing that would break her fall on the hard stone floor. Can I at least use my fans? I don't know, Wong said. Can you? She pulled her weapons from her belt. The heft in her hands was comforting as she spread them open. She had the thought that maybe if she flapped hard enough, she could take to the air like a bird. Either shoot or go hungry, Lek called out. She should have just went for it without hesitating. Now she'd drawn an audience. The entire group, including Lao Gu, watched from various seats around the camp. Precision, she thought to herself. Timing, precision, timing. She leaped into thin air. In the same instant, pebbles and dust rose from the bottom of the ravine, stacking on each other, solidifying into a rigid structure that only needed to support her weight long enough for her to take her next step. She felt the ball of her foot land gracefully on the miniature temporary stalagmite, the fragile Tower of Earth. Then, she crashed right through it. She dropped like, well, a stone. In her panic, Kiyoshi let go of her fans and reached for the column with her hands, a drowning victim ready to pull the entire lifeboat under the surface with her. She struck the side and bounced off, scrabbling for the top of the column with her fingers, but unable to find any purchase. Her back collided with the formation behind her, sending her pinwheeling face first into the bottom of the ravine. She lay there, a smear along the ground. Two thuds sounded, her fans landing after her. She had a distinct feeling, mostly because she was still alive, that someone had earth-bent the ground under her to be softer, covered the rock with a layer of sand. Her guess was Lao Gu. Zero, she heard Wong call out. Start over. Every attempt at dust-stepping failed, painfully. It was so bad that Rongi relented and let Karima try teaching her to use water as a support instead of earth. That meant Kyoshi still ended up sprawled on the ground, only wetter. Maybe you should sit the mission out, Lex said after a particularly brutal fall. For once, he was speaking out of genuine concern instead of taunting her. I don't think she can, Karima said. The only decent plans we came up with require all of us working together. I think there's ways we can make use of Kyoshi's raw power, Lauko said. He hadn't offered any opinions on the matter until now. She may be a hammer on the team of scalpels, but sometimes a brute force approach is necessary. I'll babysit her on the raid. Kiyoshi almost had to admire the way the old man spun events into the patterns he desired, a weaver looking at raw flax and seeing the cloth it would become. Maybe that would be for the best, she said. 
We can keep each other out of trouble. Each night, Kiyoshi looked at the moon growing fuller, as if it were gorging on her dread. The date of the raid drew nearer and nearer, and the mood around camp turned grim. Roles had been determined, rehearsals walked through, using props of nutshells and loose coins laid on diagrams traced in the ground. The gnawing in Kiyoshi's stomach had little to do with hunger, and cold sweat kept her awake, no matter her distance from the campfire or how close Rongi slept near her. On the bright side, the two most useless members of the group being paired up gave Kiyoshi and Lauga plenty of time to talk in private. Haven't you wondered why Mok's goal isn't to kill Governor Tay? Lauga asked moments after he ordered her to sit and meditate with him. The thought had crossed Kiyoshi's mind. He knows you're going to do it? Lauga laughed. And I used to believe you didn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> no, the reason is that he has the same piece of information I do. Palaces built in the Hao period often had an iron safe room hidden in their depths. In case of an attack, the lord of the manor would flee there and lock himself behind impenetrable metal doors. The vaults had supplies to last a month, which was more than enough time for reinforcements to arrive. Mark knows trying to kill the governor would be a waste of effort. The more Kyoshi heard about this Tay person, the more she despised him. She opened her eyes. He's going to abandon his household to an army of Daofei? What did you expect from a wealthy official? Lao Ge said. You sound disappointed. Perhaps you assumed Tay would stride onto the field of battle at great risk to himself and fight off Mok's forces single-handedly with an incredible display of earthbending, protecting scores of innocent lives. I don't know where you got that image from. Her hackles rose. It seemed like the old man never let an opportunity to sing Genju's praises go by. She tried to calm herself by returning to her meditation. Kiyoshi had been denied access to this kind of training in Yokoya, but Rongi had found moments to teach her the basics on their journey. With their bloody task looming over her head, she found the practice calming, centering, she was like cool stone, deep below the... So you're telling me you've never wondered about my age? Now he was trying to goad her on purpose. It was astounding how easily he flipped from the hypnotic, terrifying vision she knew he could be into an oafish child with wrinkles and white hair. She was wrong to have thought that calling him Sifu a few times would have given her consistent, uninterrupted access to a guru of death. I can't say that I have, Kiyoshi muttered through her teeth. He sounded slightly wounded by her lack of interest in his secrets. It's just, the people who have openly confronted me in the past with the name Tie Guai the Immortal, to a man, 
They all begged me for the secrets of longevity. The only ones who didn't were you and your mother. First, she didn't believe he was anywhere near as old as he claimed. And second, desperately grasping for more power and control over life was what people like Jenju did. Tay too, probably. Sifu, she drawled. Oh, please, impart upon me the mysteries of immortality, for I wish to watch eras pass before my eyes like the grains of an hourglass. Of course, Lao Gu said brightly. Anything for my dear student. You see, it all comes down to maintaining order, keeping things neat, clean, and tidy. Excuse me? This was genuinely offensive to Kiyoshi as a former housekeeping servant. She'd let go of her standards for cleanliness the first morning outside of Yokoya, after waking up covered in Pung Pung's shed fur. But with his drinking and aversion to changing clothes, Lao Gu towed the line of rancidity. What did he know about tidying up? Aging is really just your body falling apart on the smallest, most invisible levels, and neglecting to put itself back together, he said. With the right mental focus, you could take an inventory of your own body and place each little piece that's not where it should be back into the correct order. Kiyoshi had to assume he was tailoring his lessons to her background and that the real process was much more complicated. The way you describe it, you'd have to decide what version of yourself you'd be stuck as forever. Exactly. Those who grow live and die. The stagnant pool is immortal, while the clear flowing river dies an uncountable number of deaths. Is that another proverb of Shokin's? Because it doesn't sound like any spiritual lesson I've heard. It's my proverb, Lao Go whined, his feelings hurt again. All this fretting about spirits. I'm trying to teach you about the mind, an infinite world that's been neglected by far too many explorers. The mind. Kiyoshi's mind drifted to another existence, one where she was sitting happily across from Kelsung in a green field as he told her about the wonders of the spirit world. His warm and gentle voice guiding her consciousness until they crossed the boundary hand in hand to a land where human concerns couldn't weigh them down. She'd lost that. She'd lost him and the sickness that followed would never fully heal. Kelsung's absence had put her in stasis. If Lao Go wanted her to be stagnant and forever trapped, she'd already mastered the lesson. Kiyoshi looked at this substitute who sat before her. The strange joke she got instead of her true teacher. It was an exchange poor enough to make her weep. Spirit creatures are more interesting than mental riddles, she said. My dear, 
Laoko said softly. As you'll discover one day, the mind has specters of its own. The face of tradition. The time had come. The moon was full to bursting. It spilled its light over the fields surrounding Tay's palace, sharpening corners and altering colors in ghostly detail. Mock knew enough to schedule his raid when his men could see what they were doing. The Flying Opera Company picked its way down the rocky hillside. Does everyone know the plan? Rangi said. She was asking as a formality. Rangi had drilled each step into their skulls. It had been satisfying to see the others get a measure of Fire Nation discipline as revenge for what they'd put Kiyoshi through. Going to see Mok before the assault was part of the operation. If he let them move as they pleased and did not let his temperament and vanity reign, then with luck on their side, they would deliver him exactly what he wanted. One prisoner, unharmed. Tay's foolishness was on full display as they approached Mok's encampment south of the palace. Kiyoshi counted at least 500 Daofei preparing for battle, sharpening their swords and honing their spear thrusts. Had none of Tay's household guard noticed this many armed men converging on his location? Genji would have smothered this miniature uprising before it. She shook her head. For one night and one night only, Genju was immaterial. They tiptoed by a large group of bare-chested men arranged in neat rows deep in horse stance, chanting gibberish in unison. Their captain walked among them, holding a bundle of lit incense sticks in his hand. He ritualistically swept the smoking ends over their torsos, leaving trails of ash on their skin. Kiyoshi looked closer and saw that each man had the characters for impervious inked on their forehead. Who are they? She whispered to her companions. Those are members of the Kongshen sect, Karima said. They're non-benders who believe that performing secret purification ceremonies will make them immune to the elements. Mok must have recruited a bunch to serve as his front line. That's madness, Kiyoshi said. If they charge straight into a formation of earthbenders, they're going to be slaughtered. The men she saw had no armor, no shields. Many of them seemed to be empty-handed fighters, lacking a weapon entirely. It's amazing what the mind can be led to believe, Laoko said. Especially if you're desperate, Lek muttered. They say that people turn to the Kangshan sect after seeing a friend or loved one killed by a bender. Be made to feel powerless that way, and you'll do anything that gives you courage. They approached the center of camp. Mock was easy to spot. He'd set up a fancy wooden desk in the middle of the outdoors that served no purpose other than to show he could. He sat behind it with his fingers tented, as if he were the governor of these parts, and not Tay. Why stood next to him a nightmarish imitation of a secretary? My beloved associates, 
Mock said after they bowed. Come closer. They glanced at each other nervously and shuffled toward the desk. Closer still, Mock said. They crowded around him. Kyoshi noticed Lek was on the flank in the most danger. His head was low and still. She regretted not standing between him and the Daofei leader. I didn't get the chance to bid you farewell in Hujiang, Mok said. You missed the excitement. He stared pointedly at Rongi and Kyoshi. There was no evidence to link them to the Shirshu attack, but a man like him wouldn't need it. They were the pieces that didn't fit, and that was enough. A great beast came on the morning you left, he continued. It killed several of my best men. What do the two of you have to say about that? Why drew his knife before Kyoshi could answer? It was Lek, brave, stupid Lek, who either never learned or was too selfless for his own good, who spoke up for her again. We don't know anything about that, uncle. Kyoshi and Rangi aren't to blame. Why lunged? Certainty lent Kyoshi a speed she never knew she had. In one swift motion, she caught Wai's knife hand before it reached Lek, pinned it to the desk by his wrist, and drew her fan with her other hand. She kept the heavy weapon closed as she smashed it like a hammer on Wai's fingers, breaking them in a single blow. The knife clattered to the ground. The eyes of the flying opera company were as big and wide as the moon overhead. Everyone was shocked into silence, including Wai who seemed numbed by sheer disbelief from the pain coursing up his arm. Forgive me, uncles, Kyoshi said, finding it supremely easy to speak now. I saw a poisonous insect and thought to save your lives. Why clutched his broken hand and bared his teeth at Kyoshi, a vine cobra about to spit. She was still calm. But if Uncle Y believes my actions inappropriate, he can always teach me the meaning of discipline on the lay tie after our mission is over. Mock leaned back in his chair and crowed with laughter. So much progress in only a few weeks. This is the influence I have on people. Come, Kyoshi, since your brothers and sisters have had their tongues stolen by a spirit, Tell me what plans you've come up with since we last saw each other. She carried on as if nothing had happened, ignoring the surprise of her friends and the fury of why. She'd heard the strategizing between Rongi and Karima enough times to be convincing. We believe the prison where your, our sworn brother is being held is below the northeast courtyard, Assuming it was constructed at the same time as the oldest part of the palace, we should be able to defeat the security. He noticed her pause. But? Provided we have enough time. If Tay's guards choose to defend the prison, our group alone may never be able to spring our man. There's also a chance that if we show our hand too early, they realize what we're doing and preemptively kill the hostage. Then it's as I anticipated, Mock said, stroking his chin like a wise man. We'll need a direct attack in concert with your clandestine efforts. Kiyoshi had to give him some measure of credit.
He did foresee this outcome back in Huqiang. Mok reached inside the desk and pulled out two sticks of timing incense. Kyoshi watched him pluck Wai's knife off the ground and carefully cut them to the same length before handing them to Rongi. If you would, my lovely. She lit both tips with one finger and handed one back to Mok. Get to your positions, he said. We attack in one hour. The Flying Opera Company bowed and got out of there as fast as they could. Step one had been passed. Rangi cradled the timing incense as they left the camp, trying to shield it from breezes that might accelerate the burn and throw them off schedule. One hour, Kyoshi thought. In the distance, a few bright lights from the palace could be seen, the fires lit by servants like her for cooking and warmth. Lanterns carried by guards like the watchman who always greeted her kindly at the gates of Jenju's mansion. She looked at the Kangshan acolytes, working themselves into a frenzy, vulnerable and naked, but for their faith. One hour until blood was spilled. Steady on, Lao Go whispered to her. His words meant to be comfort only reminded her, one hour until she became the killer she was trying to be. Lek, Karima, and Wong hustled them back to camp. What's the rush? Rangi said, covering the dwindling stick of incense. There's no reason to be hasty at this point. She and Kiyoshi were already wearing their armor. We have to put on our faces, Karima said. She rummaged around her limited belongings. It's tradition before a job. Lek failed to find what he was looking for and grunted. I forgot we left Chameleon Bay in a hurry, he said. I'm out. Does anyone else have some makeup they can spare? Kiyoshi blinked, having difficulty comprehending. I do? I think there was some in my mother's trunk, along with the fans. Wong helped himself to Kiyoshi's rucksack until he found the large kit of makeup that had been completely neglected until now. It would be a disgrace for an opera troupe to perform barefaced, and stupid for thieves not to hide their identities. Kiyoshi remembered. Classical opera was performed by actors wearing certain patterns of makeup that corresponded with stock characters. The tiger monkey spirit, a popular trickster hero, always had a black cleft of paint running down his orange face. Purple meant sophistication and culture, and often appeared on wise mentor types. Her mother's journal had mentioned the makeup, but she'd overlooked it in favor of the more practical fans. And the headdress. Didn't she have a headdress too? Wong brought the kit to her and opened it. It looks like the good stuff, from Ba Sing Se, so it hasn't dried out, he said. I'll do yours first. It takes practice to put on your own face correctly. Kiyoshi shuddered at the thought of the oily paste on her skin, but decided not to complain. 
Wait a second, she said. There's nothing in here but red and white. The indentations that should have held an assortment of colors had been filled multiple times over with deep crimson and an eggshell-colored pigment. There was a small amount of black coal as well, but not enough to cover the whole face. Those are our colors, Wong said as he dipped his thumb and began to gently apply the paint to her cheeks. White symbolizes treachery, a sinister nature, suspicion of others, and the willingness to visit evil deeds upon them. Kiyoshi could hear Rangi snort so loudly, Tay might have heard it in his palace. But, Wong said, scooping into the other side of the case with his forefinger, red symbolizes honor, loyalty, heroism. This is the face that we show our sworn brothers and sisters. The red is the trust we have for each other, buried in the field of white, but always showing through in our gaze. Kiyoshi closed her eyes and let him put more paint on. Done, Wong said. He smoothed the last of the black eyeliner on her brow and stepped back to examine his handiwork. I can't promise it'll stop a sharp rock or an arrow, but I can guarantee you'll feel braver. It always does that for me. Lean down, Karima said. She pilfered the headdress out of Kiyoshi's bag while her eyes were closed. You're wearing your mother's face, so you should wear her crown as well. Kiyoshi lowered her head so that Karima could place the band around it. She'd never tried on the headdress before. It fit like it had been made for her. She rose to her full height. How do I look? She asked. Wong held up a tiny mirror that had been nestled in the lid of the makeup kit while Rangi angled the glow of the incense so she could see. The glass wasn't wide enough to display her entire face, just a slash of reflection running down the arc of gold atop her brow, across her flaring eye, and over the corner of her reddened mouth. The narrow mirror resembled a tear in the veil of the universe, and from the land that lay beyond the other side, a powerful, imperturbable, eternal being stared back at Kiyoshi. A being that could pass as an avatar someday. I'm not thrilled you're wearing Daofei colors, Rangi said, biting her lip as she smiled. But you look beautiful. You look terrifying, Lek added. A lifetime ago, Kiyoshi had never thought she would be either of those things. Then it's perfect, 